welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Matt Breed, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week we're going over UFC Vegas 18, headlined by Alexander Volkov and Alistair Overeem, a very pivotal heavyweight matchup as we got number five against number six, or I believe it's number six now against number seven, but very, very intriguing fight. Both guys coming off of solid victories um, and a win here could definitely put them in line for a title shot or at least a number one contender fight. Um, very excited for this card. I mean, we got a, we had a weekend off. Um, uh, the, the UFC just gives us three fights uh, in one week for their, their debut in 2021 and then decides to take a weekend off. But now we got eight straight weekends of events. So we, 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 we don't have much time to rest and kick back and do just whatever. You know what I mean, we, we do have a solid amount of fights to look forward to. And this is a solid card in terms of a fight night. Overall, we have solid uh, fights all around. Uh, barn, barn burners for sure. Uh, we got a couple, you know, bangers. And I can't wait to, to get into that for you guys. But first and foremost, let's get into the... Um, Let's get into the last event that we had, which was UFC 257. We end up in the green, which is great because uh, we were pretty much in the red the last two events before that. So it's good to end in the green. However, still down about minus 13 units in terms of 2021 over those three events. But I'm very happy with my performance in terms of uh, the last event and and you know being confident in a play that not a lot of people were were really seeing me uh, or seeing it from my perspective so let's start off with that one my dog of the night play i had one unit on marina rodriguez at plus 282 that was a solid amount of value i thought if anything this fight should have been a, a you know a 55 45 or a 60 40 split however we get a ton of value on rodriguez there and i'm like just just give me one minute of this fight on the feet uh with rodriguez you know uh, throwing uh, uh, some combinations and we'll see how he boss reacts especially against a fighter that actually knows how to throw and how to strike and is as mean of a striker as marina rodriguez is and we saw that you know i mean the first round went as most people expected it to but this fight always starts on the feet and that's where the advantage for rodriguez was and she landed some bombs on uh on mrs um a Mrs. Hebas there, and that cashes for us. Not only does that cash for us, so we hit plus 2.82 units on Rodriguez straight. Then we also took a 0.25 unit shot on her to win via KO at plus 13.50. That hits for plus 3.37 units. Absolute amazing fight. And that was a great turnaround considering how the uh, the first little bit of the card went for us. So I was very happy to hit that. Let's go on to another dog of the night play. I had 1.5 units on Antonio Carlos Jr. at plus 107. That crashes, you know, Tavares does a much better job of keeping this fight on the feet than I expected him to and absolutely lights up ACJ. And uh, I believe he wins that fight via decision. The fights were a, a while ago now. I don't know why that I can't remember them to the best of my ability. But um, yeah, good one for Brad Tavares there. Also, another... Well, we don't have any more dog of the night plays. My lock of the night play, I only put three and a half units on this. So as you guys know, my lock of the night plays normally go three and a half units, four units, four and a half units, or five units, depending on my level of confidence in them. This was on the lighter side. One, because my confidence was a little bit shot. I'll be completely honest. To lose the last two lock of the night plays was very, very rough. So I had to be a little bit more cautious here. Um... And we, we got probably the least predictable outcome here, which is Marcin Pragnio to win this fight via decision. I don't think a lot of people expected that to happen. I thought if anybody was going to win, it was going to be via knockout. But we see this fight dragged all 15 minutes and we see Pragnio get his hand raised. So I know that busted a lot of parlays for people for one. The fight doesn't go to decision. I think a lot of people were on that. The under one and a half and not to mention the Khalil Roundtree at minus 320. I thought that was an absurd line, which is why I wouldn't have played him there. But I thought that the spot was the under two and a half, however, or under one and a half, and that still misses, even the under two and a half misses. So that was minus 3.5 units there. 
And then uh, we'll, we'll go with the next one. I had two units on uh, Mahmoud Muradov at minus 144. Honestly, Muradov and the under one and a half in the Khalil fight were my top two picks for lock of the night plays, which is why I put two units on Muradov. I was trying to figure out which side I should go there. And unfortunately, I picked the right, wrong side. Luckily, I still bet Muradov. Cashed that for plus 1.39 units. Very happy to hit that. Solid performance on his end. And a solid finish at the end there as well, too. I know a lot of people were on the decision prop there for Muradov. Luckily, Muradov goes out there and gets the, gets the finish and secures that, that win for us. And then lastly, I had Daniel Hooker, 1.25 units at minus 125. That crashes. Uh, Michael Chandler goes out there, knocks him out. Beautiful performance from Michael Chandler. Don't have much to say about uh, Hooker in that spot. So at the end of the day, it was Marina Rodriguez that saves us. Plus 1.33 units to end the night, 14% ROI. But again, I dug myself in a bit of a hole those last two events before 257. So I'm hoping to continue to get back to, to the playing field and a, a level head here with this next event that we got at UFC Vegas 18. Got a couple plays already uh, posted. Um, they will be free to the public on Friday, the day before the fights. So if you guys want to wait, you guys can catch them then. Otherwise, if you want to hop on those plays uh, earlier, they're already on the Patreon. Five bucks a month. Link is in the description below. Early access to the breakdowns, plus a ton of other perks. I'm not going to rattle them off. But uh, yeah, all the information is in the description below. Make sure you guys check that out. Another thing I wanted to plug, I have an affiliate program with uh, Coolbet, which is a great uh, bookie up here based out of Toronto, which is where I'm from. So I want to give them a little bit of shine, give them a little bit of a, a rub. And they probably don't even need it because they've won a bunch of awards uh, in terms of being one of the best sports products out there. Their app is amazing. Their, or sorry, their, their web browser is amazing. amazing. Their mobile browser is amazing. Um, they give solid props. You're allowed to parlay props as well too. Not something that a lot of bookies allow you to do. Um, but yeah, they have a great program uh, and, and great betting odds as well too. That's where I was able to get Rodriguez at plus 282. Whereas at most places when I bet her, she was roughly around plus 250. So they have great odds. Uh, you know, solid selection of sports. Um, they, yeah, they have so many cool things. You can see what other people are betting on. So if you just want some degenerate action, you can copy other tickets and just put your own money on it. So there's cool things like that. There's a leaderboard as well too. Very, very uh, intuitive and sleek format that they have and outlay that they have uh, on their website. So definitely worth checking out. So if you're interested in Cool Bet, I have the link in the description below, but the bonus code is MMALOTN2. If you guys... Uh, put that in it's the number two mma lotn2 you guys get a 200 they'll match your deposit up to 200 dollars 100 um and i believe there's a six times rollover so outside of that uh you know a great deal uh solid affiliation program with them i already got them a bunch of uh guys right off the bat uh but they gave me an even better deal now considering how successful this affiliate program has been so make sure you guys go to coolbet.com it's in the description below i'll also have the countries that you're allowed to uh sign up for this website at uh in the description below and again after you sign up make sure you guys use the promo code or bonus code mmalotn2 they'll match your deposit 100 percent all the way up to 200 dollars. what a deal right all right uh let's get this boat moving along uh, i've already plugged the patreon plugged the cool bet nothing else to do other than to get to, to the actual breakdowns itself so i'm very much looking forward to this eight straight weekends we got cards right up the wazoo uh hopefully we can start off the stretch on a nice win here uh so yeah let's get into the breakdowns 
Ode Osborne versus Dennis Bondera. We got minus 170 on the UFC newcomer Bondera and plus 150 on Ode Osborne. Let's start off with Ode, who's coming into his sophomore stint in the UFC, or not sophomore fight in the UFC, UFC I should say. Uh, he did lose to Brian Kelleher in his UFC debut way back at UFC 246, which was the same night Conor McGregor defeated Donald Cowboy Sorny. So that was uh, January of 2020. So we're talking over a year layoff for... Um, for Oday Osborne. Before that, he did not uh, secure his um, contract in the UFC by beating Armando Villarreal uh, via armbar uh, on the contender series in July of 2019. It took him just about six months to get his first fight booked in the UFC, and then he goes on and loses to Brian Gallagher. Uh, the guy looks interesting. Like, he has a great frame for the division. I think he's a, well, he is obviously a 135, or he's 5'7 with a 72-inch reach, but he's just so long and lanky, and he can definitely get uh, his limbs up there uh, for some of these jujitsu uh, submissions or, or anything that he wants to throw up off of his back so that makes him very interesting to begin with um he throws with a little bit of heat it seems like he's pretty easy to take down which i think is going to be the big thing here uh with dennis bonder who's shown great takedowns great wrestling solid jiu-jitsu and solid scramble ability as well which i believe is going to be huge for him here as i do think we'll see Ode a little bit uh offensive off of his back which may th make things a little bit harder for bonder to get settled and really get his game going or even pull off a submission of his own uh but Ode could definitely make things very very interesting now, my qualm here with uh, Ode Osborne is we've only seen him go to a decision one time, or sorry, twice. He won one, and then he uh, he won one via split, and then he lost one as well by unanimous. But his last, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, six fights have all ended in the first round. And then we know what to really make of these guys, uh, you know, coming into the UFC with all first-round finishes or, all, you know, only fights that go into the first round because if fights get extended... We don't know what the cardio looks like. You know what I mean? that That's the big part, first and foremost. That's the one thing I really like to look uh, at when I'm looking at some of these newer fighters coming into the UFC is... What does the cardio look like? You know, I mean, if they're if they're pushed to get extended to like the second and third rounds, are they just gonna fold fold over and and just get submitted or TKO'd? That could absolutely be a possibility, right? Uh, but this Bondair guy looks pretty good. I, I'm very impressed with what I've been seeing over his last couple of fights. Two fights ago, he's fighting in a it, it, probably the worst uh, setting you could have an MMA fight. Like, you, no cage, no ring, nothing. Just open mat uh and it didn't even look like the biggest either like the guys are like rolling for heel hooks and just rolling out of the uh off the the mat it, it was crazy like if you're in any situation where you're in a leg lock just keep rolling once you get off uh, onto the mat uh off off the mat like they're not going to set you right back up in, in that position so um luckily for him he goes out there still gets a submission victory and he's on a bit of a roll as well too like he has one two three four five six seven eight straight wins all via finish uh most of them coming in the first round as well too we've seen him in the third round it seems like his cardio holds up a little bit um and his again his wrestling is the main thing here i think that ode will have a lot of issues in terms of dealing with that but i think he could potentially pull something off of his back i'm not willing to to risk the money here on ode and think that he'll actually uh, uh actually finish it but uh it's definitely a possibility and you want to be careful with these UFC newcomers. Again, you can almost say that they're both newcomers. Yeah? I mean, O'Day only spent two and a half minutes in the cage against Kelleher. And we saw him, you know, give up a takedown and then eventually give up that guillotine choke. Um, in terms of training, we got uh, O'Day Osborne coming out of, um, what's it, Pura Vida, I think it's called. Uh, yeah, Pura Vida. 
which is actually in Milwaukee. So it's not Rufus Sport. Uh, it's actually the gym that Zach Auto trains out of. Uh, so that like Milwaukee is pretty much split, split into that those two camps. Most fighters tend to go over to Rufus Sport. We've seen Ode Osborne have a couple uh, training sessions at Rufus Sport, but most often than not, we see him training with uh, Pura Vida. Um, solid training camp you know you got a, got a couple guys that have made it to the UFC that have made the walk before that have been successful to a certain extent um, but I still think that Bondair uh, wrestling is going to be a little bit too much here I think he'll be able to accrue the, the top position uh, the longer this fight goes I feel like I got to lean more so on the Bondair side and again that's just off of the fact that we haven't seen Osborne as of late extended in those second and third rounds but I'm going to assume that he probably doesn't have the, the tank to go to go for that and again just being continuously taken down and and controlled from on top i think is just a, a bad look for him so i like uh i like uh bondere here he could possibly pull off the submission as well too i'll go with second round submission for bondere um but i'm very intrigued to see how this guy pans out in the ufc because he definitely looks like a, a a bit of a monster and a bit of a beast so i'm inter interested to see how far he can truly take it but i'll go with dennis bondere uh to win this fight via second round submission Yusuf Zalal versus Sungwoo Choi. We got minus 255 on Yusuf Zalal, who's stepping in on short notice against Sungwoo Choi, who's uh, plus 195. The line did open around minus 204 Zalal, and we've seen the steady money come in on Zalal uh, to, to make him an even wider favorite here. So the last time we saw Lazal, <laughs> last time we saw Yusuf Zalal was against uh, Ilya Tupuria, and everybody knows Tupuria's name at this point in time, a young, hot prospect coming into the game, and uh, you you know came in as a slight underdog against Yusuf but actually first initially came in as a pretty hefty underdog and then all the love and money came in on Tupuria pushing him to pretty much an even I think a plus 110 was like the best line that you could get at him uh once the fight started but we saw Tupuria uh you know great first test in the UFC great to really showcase that this guy is a top level guy has a ton of potential uh going out there and, and out grinding Zalal and we're talking about a Zalal that's like very well um very well trained uh has has a t and i believe he's coming out of colorado on team elevation but uh, he also has a, a ton of experience too like last year alone he made his ufc debut against austin lingo at ufc 258 and then goes out there and puts together what is that uh one two three four fights in 2020 um uh, and going three and one, obviously the one loss to Ilya Tapori. He still goes out there, beats Jordan Griffin, and then beats Peter Barrett as well too. And he was scheduled to fight Sungwoo Choi that night. Uh, instead, he gets Ilya Tapori and picks up his first loss in the UFC. Uh, gr great stand-up fighter, moves well, throws a lot of spinning shit. Very unorthodox with his approach, but it can also go out there and now grind guys too. Exactly what he did against Austin Lingo, where he was just able to take him down time and time again, show some solid work from on top, and also pull off a couple of submission attempts as well too. He's very active, um, you know, solid cardio as well too, and I think that's where the edge is going to be here against Sungwoo Choi, who seems to deteriorate the longer the fight goes. Choi, on the other hand, the guy's had a very tough run in the UFC. He's two and one, or sorry, one and two. Uh, you know, his one loss, or sorry, one win, come against uh, Suman Mokhtarian. If you guys remember the Mokhtarian brothers, I think his other brother's name was 
uh, Ashkan Maktarian. I, th- I might be getting that wrong, but both brothers, absolutely horrible fighters. I just don't, don't think they deserve to be in the UFC. So at least uh, Choi was able to get a bit of a layup in that fight uh, against Sumani. He goes out there and absolutely just outworks him over 15 minutes. Kind of surprised that we didn't see Choi get him out of there, but we saw what Troy looks like when he's at his best. His Muay Thai is on point. His clinch game is on point. He's able to use his knees, elbows, and kicks to the best of his abilities, and he's able to outstrike these guys. When your UFC debuts against a guy like Movzar Evluev, things are pretty tough. So he got out grinding in that fight. Then he goes in against Gavin Tucker, who was on a mission. You know, I mean, he 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 lost uh, for Gavin Tucker. He was coming off that loss to Rick Glenn, where he just got absolutely beat down, and he came back with a huge fire. Um, in this fight against Sung Choi and just went off on him, eventually finishing that fight in the third round. Now, this is still a tough fight for Sung Choi, which is why he's such a, uh, a hefty underdog here again. I think Yusuf Zalal definitely can put the work on him, put the pace, put the pressure on him, make him move. Um, and, and I think that Zalal is, is definitely a solid spot here. I, I, I want to give Choi the benefit of the doubt, but it's very tough. Like the fight against Anglin was probably an easier fight for him. And he was the favorite going into that fight too. But now here he is as a plus 200 underdog. Uh, Yusuf Zalal, again, we, we saw him really break down and, and uh, you know, we, we saw a lot of pain from him after he lost to Ilya Tapuria because he was on such a great run. And then he loses to Taporia. So I think we're going to see him come back with a huge fire under his belly as well, too. And uh, this is a great matchup for him against Troy. I can even see Zalal going out there and kind of just grinding this fight out like he did against Austin Lingo. You know what I mean? We we know that the the Muay Thai champion in, in uh, Sungwoo Choi is definitely the best when he's able to fight at range and, and fight in these clinch positions as well, too, get his knees going. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Zalal kind of snatch up one of those legs, one of those knees, and take this fight to the ground. So... Um, I'm expecting a full MMA display here from Yusuf Salal. I'm expecting him to come through as a minus 255 favorite. And I think he's a solid part of late piece. You know, I think he's a great fighter. Sungo Choi has just had the worst luck of the draw in terms of the types of matchups that he's being put up against. Now, if he's actually deserving of being in the UFC, he should be able to steal at least a round here for Yusuf Salal. But uh, it's a tough ask. Zalal is very well trained, uh, a solid fighter, great talent, uh, was just outmatched stylistically in his last fight against Ilya Taporia. But here, uh, I think this is a great fight for him to get right back on track. So I'm going with Yusuf Zalal. I think he wins this fight via decision. Um, but again, very unfortunate for Troy for taking this fight. Uh, he just wants to fight, you know what I mean? It's unfortunate. And the last time we saw him was December of 2019. So we're talking about over you know, 13, 14 months since we've last seen, seen him compete. So he has to take this fight. You know what I mean? So uh, once again, I got Yusuf Zalal to win this fight via decision, just having, uh, you know, grinding him out, uh, taking him down, doing some good work from on top, uh, but just being the more active fighter. So once again, Yusuf Zalal to win this fight via decision. Molly McCann versus Laura Procopio. We got minus 160 on... Um, I'm making sure that's actually the right number. Yeah, minus 160 on Molly McCann and plus 140 on Laura Procopio. Let's start off with Molly McCann, who's coming off a unfortunate loss to Tyler Santos last time around in a fight where she came in as a minus 140, minus 150 favorite. And a lot of people were on that Molly McCann train thinking, okay, she went out there and 
you know, uh, Russell fucked uh, Diana Belbita. She should be able to do the same thing to Tyler Santos, who in her previous fight kind of got grappled fucked as well by Mara Romero Barella. But you got to extrapolate a little bit. You can't just look strictly at the last fight. And if you extrapolate for Tyler Santos, uh, especially her fight in the contender series, she looked absolutely amazing. Just just on on point every single aspect of MMA. Her striking looked great, her wrestling, her grappling, everything looked great. And it truly seemed in her UFC debut against Mara Romero Barella that it was just more so the jitters or she just really wasn't feeling it that night because that was just not a good um that that was not a good statement of who she actually is as a fighter. And we truly saw that come to fruition in her fight against Molly McCann. Now Molly had a lot of issues trying to get uh uh, Santos down and she really couldn't get her striking game going either which was a real uh, bummer for her considering that her background does come from the boxing world uh, she landed a couple of good shots on Tyler Santos but nothing Im- incredible that really blew your hair back or anything like that and then Santos was able to you know get the better of the striking exchanges push her up against the cage get her to the ground and control her on the ground as well too I believe she accumulated close to six or seven minutes of control time on Molly McCann there uh, again, like I said in the fight before with Diana Belbita, it's not going so well for her in those first three minutes where Belbita coming in as like a plus 350, plus 400 underdog, she goes in there and she kind of lights up Molly McCann in those first couple minutes and then Molly decides, you know what, let me wrestle. And then she goes out there and she wrestles. I think she lands, a, I want to c- confirm this number, but I think she landed over five takedowns in that fight against Belbita. Uh, yeah, she went, uh, she landed five takedowns. She even got a 10-7 in that round too due to uh, a point taken away from Babita, but uh, it was a lot of uh, one-way traffic in that second round. And then obviously she completes uh, the third round by by winning a decision there. But I don't know what people were thinking they were getting with Molly McCann going into that Tyler Santos fight. Like they just see a grappling display on one fight and then, uh, you know, Santos uh, struggling the fight before that but again extrapolate a little bit let's go back and let's see what they actually look like you know maybe not in their UFC debuts or anything like that so Molly McCann I'll give this to her um you know solid hands solid striking she does a good job of of like you know closing the distance to kind of land her bombs but she does not have crazy striking to the point where you're like okay you know this is um this is a um a, a Tyler Santos situation or this is um a uh, uh, Marina Rodriguez situation with Amanda Hebos. Like, she doesn't have that good of striking. Even Carl Rosa, Hosa. Like, I would take Carol Hosa in the, uh, a fight against Molly McCann any day. Uh, and uh, the reason I bring up Carol Hosa is that's the only fight that we've seen Laura Procopio have in the UFC. She, um, she she goes out there and and lands i believe is 170 strikes let me get that number right before I, yeah so carol hosa runs 171 strikes on laura procopio and then uh, procopio in return lands 165 strikes of her own and we're talking about procopio who's a jiu-jitsu player she's a black belt she trains with uh novo Uniao and andre pedaneras and those guys and uh you know she, she trains with ketlin Vieira, another high level 135er um but her game is jiu-jitsu so if you go back and watch her fights on the regional scenes you see her you know going for the takedown almost immediately whether it's a, a body lock takedown a trip up against the cage she gets the opponents to the ground and then she goes to work with the jiu-jitsu and and you know pulls off a submission every now and then um has a you know some ground and pound finishes i'm very bummed that i wasn't able to find her last two fights before the ufc because she won both of those fights via decision and i'm kind of assuming that her jiu-jitsu had a lot to do with it 
Now she just wasn't able to close the distance properly against Carol, uh, yeah, Carol Hosa, where she went 0-5 on takedown attempts. But you know, a lot of that was kind of desperation takedowns, and I don't think we'll really see true desperation takedowns here from her against Molly McCann, who could almost easily be bullied up against the cage. And at that point, I think that's where we'll see Carol. Um, Procopio lands some of her body lock takedowns or her trip takedowns some takedowns that we've seen Molly McCann give up in the past um and just going through her IG as well with Procopio you see her really working on her strength and conditioning she knows she needs to get a little bit stronger um especially going up against some of these women she's 5'4 uh, with a 67-inch reach for Molly McCann, we're getting 5-4 with a 62-inch reach. So slightly bigger frame on uh, Procopio here. But again, it's for her to be successful in this fight, I truly believe she needs to, needs to get this fight to the ground. I think Molly McCann could land some good shots on the feet. And again, Procopio kind of holding her own against uh, Carol Hosa. Uh, obviously outstruck, like damage-wise. It was obviously Carol Hosa's game. But to still go out there and land as many strikes as she did, it was very, very impressive in my end. And not to mention, look at Carol Hosa's face in that fight. Like, she took some damage. It's not like there were pitter-patter uh, 165 strikes that were landing on Hosa. Some of them did have a little bit of pop on them too, and she definitely busted up the nose of uh, of Hosa in that fight. So I don't think it's going to be a complete wipeout for Molly McCann on the feet, but I think Procopio will be able to kind of hold her own enough to eventually drag this fight to the ground and then really get her jiu-jitsu game going, which is where I think she's very live to even pull off a submission victory here. We saw Jillian Robertson pull off a submission on Molly McCann in her UFC debut, and you could probably chalk it up to a little bit of butterflies. It's in your hometown, Liverpool, you know what I mean? Like, it might have caught up to her, so I'll give uh, McCann a little bit of a pass there. But when you're talking about a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu here, who most of her wins earlier in her career came via submission, I could definitely see her pull off a submission here against Molly McCann as well, too. So I'm going to be leaning with the grappler here, and I, I do get shades of like poor man's Amanda Hibas and poor man's uh, Marina Rodriguez in the sense that Molly McCann is a striker, and uh, Procopio is obviously the grappler here, but I don't think that we'll see a Marino Rodriguez type starching from uh, from from Molly McCann here. Um, more so, I'll see you know them play on the feet a little bit, and then when Procopio wants, she can really push this fight up against the cage and start to drag it to the floor and start to use her top position. So at plus one forty, it's not a bad spot for uh, for Procopio, who I think will have a uh, you know the more dominant grappling and be able to get this fight to the ground more often than not. Um, we obviously know takedowns usually score a lot more than what you'll see on the feet. And uh, even if Molly McCann wants to take this fight to the ground, I think that would be a mistake on her end uh, trying to have to deal with the the, the black belt in jiu-jitsu from Pocopio because she is quite active from her guard, which is very, very impressive. Something that I usually like to see from black belts. You know, it's great to have a black belt, but if you're not offensive with it and trying to make your opponent uncomfortable and try to nullify the strikes that are coming from on top then i don't really rate you but procopio you see it when she's on her back she's working for arm bars she's working for reversals she's definitely on it more often than not so i like what i see from procopio and i'm not sure why i had this negative perception of what i was thinking procopio was coming into this fight again she got starched by carl Horso, not starched but like uh, um unanimously outstruck uh, over 50 minutes against Carol Hosa, but again, like Hosa is a legitimate striker. Procopio 
does her best work in the grappling. She wasn't able to get it there, but I do think she'll be able to get it there against Molly McCann. So in a, in a fight that I see closer to 50-50 and possibly even giving Procopio an edge in terms of possibly being a favorite here, I think we're getting some solid line value at plus 140 on Procopio, and people are, are getting hip to it. We got um, plus 165, I believe, was the open on Procopio, down to plus 140. I think that we'll see this line start to tighten up the closer that the fight gets. So uh, I'll probably have to toss a little bit of a bet here on Procopio. Again, it's it's a little bit of the Molly McCann fade, but also when you take the, the styles and, and the, the, the history uh, into consideration, you got to see that uh, Molly McCann, 33% takedown defense. She you know She's gotten taken down 8 out of 12 attempts against her, uh, and Procopio is definitely going to be searching for that. And people might want to discredit Procopio a little bit just because of the, the desperation takedowns they saw later in the fight against Carol Hosa, but that's not how she gets her takedowns. Like, that's her after 13 minutes of getting beat up in the face. You know what I mean? She's not going to get to that point. I think she'll be more successful with the takedowns earlier in the fight against uh, Molly McCann. Again, push her up against the cage. Uh, the, the types of takedowns that Procopio uses to get fights to, to the ground are takedowns that I've seen other fighters use against Molly McCann and be very successful with it. So, um, yeah, I like Procopio here. Uh, I think she's live for a submission too. So just to just to be ballsy here, I'll go out there and they go out there and say she wins via first or second round submission. Uh, she's really going to put that black belt to use, and I really think it will make her live to to get a submission victory here. So, once again, I'll go with uh, Lara Procopio to win this fight via second round submission. Carol Hosa versus Jocelyn Edwards. We got minus one seventy on Carol Hosa. And uh, Jocelyn Edwards is coming in at plus 150, who just made her debut uh, at the beginning of January, the first ever event uh, back in 2021 for the UFC. She makes her UFC debut on short notice there. And she, once again, comes in here, steps in on short notice to fight Carol Hosa, who originally was supposed to fight Nico Montano. So let's get into this fight. And I'm very much excited for this fight. Let's start off with Jocelyn Edwards, first and foremost, who's, uh, again, making her sophomore run into the UFC um, it came off a very successful debut against Wu Yanan last time around, where she outstruck her close to uh, 40 strikes. I do want to get the actual, um, the, the exact numbers. Yeah, we had 88 to 58, uh, and then we had one takedown from Wu Yanan there. One sub attempt from uh, Jocelyn Edwards as well. If you guys remember that first round, she throws up that very close arm bar, gets close to it a couple times. Unfortunately, Wu Yanan gets out of it both times. But what do we see from her? And it's exactly what I was expecting, uh, you know, after running the tape on her from a regional scene. We saw, you know, solid Muay Thai, good striking, good knees, good aggression, solid uh, groundwork as well too when she was on her back. She did a good job in terms of uh, reversing uh, takedown attempts from Wu Yunnan or even just reversing her on the ground and then throwing up a couple of submission attempts as well too. So I was very impressed with Edwards, just as I said I was uh, when I was breaking down that fight against uh, Wu Yunnan. I thought she had a ton of potential. Uh, I still think she does. You know what I mean? She's still young in, in age. She was born in 95 so so she's 25 currently um carol hosa on the other end uh is 26 uh she she just turned 26 in december so relatively same age here uh in terms of experience we're talking about carol hosa who's 13 and 3 and we got jocelyn edwards that's 10 and 2 so pretty pretty close there in terms of the amount of experience uh training partners the advantages definitely have to go to uh carol hosa here 
who pretty much trains uh, regularly uh, side by side with Jessica Andrade. Um, so that's a solid training partner to have there. Jocelyn Edwards, on the other hand, still just training in the middle of nowhere, not really getting in good tra with training partners. Uh, so that's a little bit of a concern. Uh, so th the difference with Edwards against uh, Wu Yanan and Edwards against Carol Hosa here is I think that Hosa is a little bit more of a refined striker than what she was going up against with Wu Yanan. You know, I like what we're seeing from Hosa in terms of combinations, solid leg kicks, um, it, you know, a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, good fight IQ in terms of when, the, when to take the fight to the ground or clinch up when necessary. And uh, I think that might be a little bit of the kryptonite here to Jocelyn Edwards. Now, I don't want to see Carol Hosa go out there and take down Edwards as Edwards, again, like I said, very active off of her back and she could possibly be live for a submission there. Uh, even though Carol Hosa coming into this fight is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, but but on the feet, I, I'm interested because I thought in the Wu Yunnan fight, we would get, you know, uh, damage versus volume. But the person who was bringing the damage also brought the volume as well, too. She goes out there, I believe she throws 206 strikes, lands 86 of them or 88 of them. Uh, again, completely outstriking the person that was, was supposed to be bringing the volume and the output. Now here with Carol Hosa, we're talking about somebody who attempted over 300 strikes in her first fight against Lara Procopio. Uh, I do want to pull that up in terms of the actual numbers. So she landed 171. She threw 351. In her next fight against Vanessa Mello, she landed 120 and threw 228. Makes in two takedowns there as well, too, for a total of five and uh, close to six minutes of control time. So I think Carol Hosa might be the better overall fighter here, and she has a lot to offer on the feet. I got to give the, the speed advantage, though, to Jocelyn Edwards. I think she throws with a little bit more uh, pep in her step. She throws a little bit more heat uh, and throws a little bit more speed, too. But Carol Hosa just brings back such a, like, a very educated lead hand. That's one thing that I found very impressive with her in terms of from her jab to her lead hook. Uh, you know, she, she shows it all. She shows a great uh, versatility with the striking game. So I'm very impressed with what I'm seeing from Carol Hosa. I wish this fight was lined a little bit closer, though, because I do lean the Carol Hosa side, uh, as I do think she has a more complete game, throws in combinations, uh, and I think she could kind of stunt the forward movement of Jocelyn Edwards, you know, by just sticking those combinations out there and remaining active. Jocelyn Edwards could obviously have her moments as well, too, mixing in her complete Muay Thai game. But with that said, we do see solid Muay Thai from Carol Hosa as well, who in clinches finds those vital knees and those perfectly timed knees uh, to really uh, initiate damage on her opponent. So this is a close fight, um, you know, closer than the line suggests. But with that said, I'm not the highest uh, on, on taking Edwards in the spot at plus 150. I do think she still has some solid uh, potential. I think she could definitely make a little bit of noise in the top 15 in this division. However, I just need to see a little bit more of, from her against more, uh, you know, uh, recognized opponents or more legitimate opponents. And I think Carol Hosa herself, who is a prospect, I think that's a good test for both women here to see where they're at and who really is more ready to crack into that top 15 and that top 10. Um I also do believe that Jocelyn Edwards, uh, mainly um, somebody that, you know, again, is only second fight in the UFC, is a 135-pounder. Uh, it seems like Hosa is going to have a little bit of a size advantage when I'm talking about actual mass. So we got 5'8", 70-inch reach for Jocelyn Edwards, whereas Carol Hosa, we got... Uh, five five sixty seven and a half inch reach, but in terms of like like strength, it looks like Hosa will definitely have the advantage there. She seems like she would be able to bully Justin Edwards a little bit more. 
A um, little bit torn on this fight, but I am going to side with the Carol Hosa side as I do believe that she uh, she has a better overall game. Again, I, I love her combinations. I love her tenacity in terms of sticking with the combinations and moving forward. Her durability looks great too, but then again, she's not really fighting the, the hardest punchers in Vanessa Mello and, and Laura Procopio in her last two fights. Uh, but I'm still interested to see how her career totally shapes out. Edwards, last time we really saw her have issues was against Sarah Alpar, who was a very grapple-dominant opponent, who just kept pushing Edwards up against the gauge, taking her down, not really doing too much damage, and allowing Edwards to get back to the feet. So uh, I don't expect to see that type of approach here from Keller Hosa. I'm expecting both these women to throw down. Um, I'm not going to entirely say that the damage is strictly going to come from the Edwards side, because I do think Hosa has some pop on her shots. She throws great combinations, uh, and she really snaps the head back of her opponents whenever she's landing these big shots. So, um, you know... Edwards does seem to be a hittable opponent. She might be able to use that reach advantage to her uh, advantage a little bit, but I don't think it's going to be huge here. So uh, again, I'll go with Carol Hosa. I think she lands more shots here. She looks busier. Maybe sprinkles in a takedown or two, uh, you know, showing off that fight IQ of hers. Um, and again, solid training camp coming. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the, the exact team's name. PVRT. PRVT. Perenne Valitudo. Um, again, uh, where Jessica Andrade uh, trains as well, too. So I'll go with Carajosa here. I think she wins by decision, combinations, takedowns, uh, and just an overall game. And I, I think that Edwards might be a little bit too green to be facing an opponent you know who has this type of experience and seen the types of fights that uh, Hosa has seen at this point in time uh, but again I, I, I'm not going to completely write off Edwards here I think she has a solid chance to really fill out to be a solid prospect uh, but this is, a, this is a very tough test especially on short notice too you're taking this on short notice you're fighting a better version of Wu Yanan um, and, and again I think the combinations and, and fight IQ of Carol Hosa will definitely pay off here so once again I'll go with Carol Hosa to win this fight via decision. Martin Day versus Tamor Valiev. And we got no betting line on this yet. This fight was put together pretty last minute over the last couple days. Um, however, this is Sunday, me recording this, and we still don't have a betting line. I want to get my podcast out on Monday. So, uh, yeah, I just got to do the breakdown. I'm fully expecting tomorrow Valiev to be around a plus or a minus 350 to a minus 400 favorite here. And at that line, I don't think that he's going to be bettable. So let's talk about their uh, skill sets to begin with. We got Timor Valiev, who's coming off a very close victory over uh, Trevin Jones. Unfortunately, he gets snatched from him uh, by Mr. Chris Tyone, uh, who you know does not stop the fight against Trevin Jones. And then Trevin eventually, in the second round, goes out there and lands a beautiful counter hook, which eventually... Um, puts Timor Valiev on his butt, follows up with some ground and pound and gets to finish that way. I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that whole situation. First of all, I'm okay with the fight not being stopped when Valiev had Trevin Jones hurt. Like Trevin was still on his feet, doing his best to cover up as best as possible. He was eating a lot of shots, but he was still moving. He was, he was still trying to get his wits about him. Um, and you could clearly see the power bar on Timor Valiev slowly de depleting, or I should say his stamina bar totally uh, depleting there as he was just throwing everything he could into those shots to try and take Trevin Jones out of there. Jones, you know, pulls through, uh, makes it to the next round, and then just lands a, a beautiful counter of his own and follows up with some ground and pound. And I have a little bit of an issue with that stoppage as well too, as I feel as though uh, you could see that Valiev was trying to get back to his feet uh, he was in a prime position to get a uh, takedown of his own if uh, that fight had uh, 
you know, had continued. However, uh, Mr. Chris Tyone is just like, you know what? It's all right. Both these guys have taken enough damage. Let me just stop this fight here. So big win for Trevin Jones is a hefty uh, underdog there. Um, I actually want to get the actual number of what he what he closed that as because that was insane uh i believe it like believe it was like a minus 800 favor going into that fight because trevin jones took that on super short notice uh so the actual number was minus 640 for tomorrow believe and plus 470 or plus 450 for trevin jones so um yeah, I still think Valiev has a lot to offer here. He's 16 and 2. It was his only law or second loss here. Uh, his only other loss was to Chris Gutierrez, who I believe it was a split decision loss. He got the immediate rematch and gets the victory in the second fight. So, um, yeah, uh, has has an argument to 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 be undefeated at this point in time. I still think he has a lot to give. Um, you know, very crafty with his kicks. Is a heavy kicker for sure. Uh, likes to throw spinning stuff. Is a, more along the the Magomed Sharapov side of things in terms of talking about Russians uh, than he is on the the Khabib side. He does have solid wrestling. He can take guys down and accrue some solid top pressure there too. But uh, you know, he he does a lot of his damage from his hands and from his kicks. And that's where I think he'll have the advantage here against Martin Day, who Martin Day himself, a, a solid uh, boxer and a solid uh, striker himself. However, he really, really leaves himself open to be countered. And he doesn't really have the greatest pop on his shots either, which is why guys are okay to just bite down on their mouthpiece, throw caution to the wind themselves. And more often than not, they'll land on Martin Day themselves. So, uh, you know, Martin Day obviously coming off of, I believe, three straight finishes right now. Uh, sorry, he lost a split decision to Ping Liu. Ping Wian Liu, I'm always going to butcher that guy's name, uh, gets knocked out by Davy Grant in round three back at UFC 251, and then most recently gets guillotine choked by Anderson Dos Santos uh, in November. So he's taking this fight on relatively short notice, um, but I, I want to talk about that Dos Santos fight first and foremost. We saw the first couple, like maybe minute and a half, two minutes play out, where Martin Day was doing some good work on the feet, and then you just saw this flick, uh, like this switch just completely happen on uh on anderson dos santos where he's just like you know what screw it I, i've tasted what this guy can throw at me i'm just gonna stand there and just try to throw bombs and that's what he did and he landed a couple big ones on martin day eventually getting this fight to the ground doing some good work from on top martin day eventually gets the butterfly uh guard and pushes um dos santos off of him but just makes an absolutely horrible mistake terrible fight iq there in terms of following the get up with a takedown of his own and not just a takedown a huge takedown where he leaves his neck exposed and anderson dos santos being the black belt that he is snatches onto that neck and eventually gets the tap via guillotine choke so i just don't know how you can be comfortable back in martin day no matter what odds he's at you know what i mean you can say what you want about believe possibly having an iffy chin but i do think that trevin jones hits much hits much harder than what martin ding brings to the table when it comes to the striking realm Technically, if this fight goes to a full 15 minutes, Martin Day could be live with his striking. But I do think at a certain point, we'll see Valiev catch him, uh, you know, land the better shots, maybe even get some or, uh, wrestling going as well, too, as I do think he has a, Valiev has a solid top game. Uh, and Martin Day seems to show decent uh, takedown defense at times. However, I think the more you, you lay it on him, the more successful that you'll be. So that's, I think, we'll get out of uh, more Valiev here. But with that said... Again, we're probably getting minus 300, minus 400, maybe minus 500 on Tomorrow Valiev here. And with that, I'm, I'm just going to stay away. I don't just, I, I just don't think there's enough value there. You get Martin Day off of three straight losses. You know, I mean, he could possibly know that this is definitely the fight that has his job on the line. I thought it was last time. You know, I mean, both guys, Anderson Dos Santos and Martin Day coming into that fight 0 2 in the UFC. 
And uh, surprisingly, Martin Day still gets another shot here. Uh, I think it was more so him doing a favor for the UFC and then being like, all right, we'll, we'll take it, we'll keep you around, but you got to win this one. So if he comes in there with that mentality, who knows what kind of Martin Day we're actually going to get. But based on what we've been getting from tape is, you know, solid distance striker, good combinations, uh, can pick his opponents apart. But I think that Timor believes... Uh, uh, movement, his 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 striking game himself, as well as that grappling advantage is going to be a little bit too much for Martin Day here. So I'll take Tamora to win this fight. I think he just grinds this fight out. I think we're going to get a decision here, but uh, my money is going nowhere near this fight, uh, just given the circumstances surrounding it. But uh, you're getting a pick out of me. You want to go with uh, Tamora Valive to win this fight via decision. Mike Rodriguez versus Danilo Marquez. We got minus 220 on slow Mike Rodriguez and plus 185 on the sophomore Danilo Marquez. Let's start off with Danilo Marquez, who is, like I said, coming into his second fight in the UF or second fight in the UFC. Uh, he comes off a successful debut against Hadis Ibrahimov way back at uh, UFC 253 in September. Uh, I believe they were the current jerk of their night. And uh, luckily for him, he's able to go out there and beat Hadis via decision. Now, that's a fight that I took the under two and a half in as one of my main plays, as I expected either Hadis to go out there and get him out early, or if this fight were to drag on, I would I thought that would see Danilo get this fight to the ground and pull off a submission over Hadis. However, neither came to fruition, probably one of the sloppiest fights we've ever seen over there at Fight Island, and uh, Danilo comes out with his hand raised in that fight. Now, the, the reason I'm so low on Danilo and why I consider him to probably be the worst fighter in the UFC, I'm sure there's a couple of guys out there that are uh, willing to raise their hand to, well, not willing to raise their hand to take that uh, to take that award, but um, I thought Hadith was, uh, but uh, Hadith goes out there and proves that he was the worst fighter in the UFC, and I'm pretty sure he got cut as well. So um, now it's Danilo. Now with Danilo, he's going up against Mike Rodriguez, who... You know, coming off a very unfortunate loss to Ed Herman, uh, but getting sorry, getting back to uh, Danilo and why I think he's bad. Uh, most people know him as the jiu-jitsu coach of one Shogun Hua. He has a black belt under Damian Maya, but if you go back and run his tape on the regional scene, it's quite tough to watch. The guy's striking does not look good at all. The only props I will give him is the fact that he was able to um, throw a couple like lead kicks out there some teeps looked good especially con considering his range and how tall he is is he's six six uh which is absolutely insane 77 and a half range reach very tall guy uh but just does not how to use his range or his striking good at all um you know more often than not his game plan is to get the fight to the ground and try to you know pull off some sort of jiu-jitsu or some submission however uh you know he should be able to do it against guys that uh on the regional scene, like just for example, his third last opponent, uh, Paul Emeno. The guy was 0-16. I went back and checked his record again now after that fight, and that fight was July of 2017. He went on to incur four more losses, still has yet to gather a victory. And uh, we saw Danilo go out there and pull off an armbar against him in the, not even sure what round that was. And then after that, he goes out there, beats a 5-4-1 guy, and then about Two and a half years later, somehow makes his UFC debut. I'm sure something had to do with Shogun Hua and or his manager kind of whispering into the ears of these guys. But uh, the guy is just not good. Like even with his jujitsu, we don't see it as high level as we would expect it to be, considering that's probably his only positive trait. Um, but he's in here for a tough one. And even in his fight against Myron Dennis, now a lot of people look at that and be like, oh, split decision, uh, loss for Danilo. Why didn't Myron go out there and finish him if his striking it really isn't that good? 
But if you go back and watch that fight, it seemed like Myron was either super hesitant about the takedowns because he was definitely not putting his uh, his full effort into those punches and those kicks. Like it, it seemed like he was more so just throwing them out there to kind of keep Danilo on the outside. However, um, you know, he just wasn't able to do much damage there. We saw Danilo get the fight to the ground over and over again, and there was a solid case that he probably won that fight too. But here, against slow Mike Rodriguez, he's going to be in for a world of hurt, in my opinion. The re- that's the reason why I see the line at minus 225, which is weird, actually, because the line is starting to come back down, something I thought that it wouldn't do. Uh, what do we got? So we got uh, Mike Rodriguez open at minus 260, come down to my- minus 225. Usually bet online is the first guys to get their lines out. So let's see what they had at that. Yeah, minus 240 down to minus 210. Now, I think people are just going to go back and look at that Herman submission and be like, oh, he got tapped out by 40-year-old Ed Herman. Obviously, he's going to go out there and get tapped by this Danilo Marquez guy. And in terms of Danilo, I believe he's up there in age two. Yeah, he's 35. He just turned 35 in uh, in December. But yeah, the guy, uh, he has his work cut out for him uh, against Mike Rodriguez. If you guys remember that Herman fight, he pretty much finished him twice there. Yet Chris Tyone was just like, nah, let's see this dead body before we stop this fight. And then luckily for Ed Herman, he was able to survive that onslaught and then pull off a more victory of his own. But very unfortunate for Mike Rodriguez. It was good to see going back and watching um, Dana White talk about that fight. He said he actually ended up compensating Mike Rodriguez because he truly believed the ref fucked him over there. Uh, if you guys remember, he he hit him with a couple of knees in the clinch. Um, uh, Ed Herman goes down. The Chris, uh, the the referee thinks that it's uh, a low blow, and um, you know Ed Herman obviously continues to play with it. And even Mike Rodriguez is like, "What are you talking about? I didn't hit him. What, what do you mean time?" Uh, and then luckily for Ed Herman, he was able to stick it through and, and pull off a late submission victory. And I think he even thinks that he got away with the murder there. So uh, good for Ed Herman. But Mike looked great in that fight. Even before that fight, goes out there and finishes Marcin Pracnio. Beautiful elbows in the clinch. Um, shows that he has a lot of power. And I think that's what's going to be key here against uh, Danilo Marquez. He is also a big light heavyweight himself. He's 6'4", 82 and a half inch reach. But, uh, you know, I, I, what I think is really going to come into play here is the, the Southpaw versus Orthodox uh, stances that we got. So we got Danilo in the Orthodox position. We got uh, Mark uh, Rodriguez in the Southpaw position. And one thing that I've kind of noticed from Danilo's game is for some reason he likes to have his hands up all the way up to his face and I think it's more so due to maybe he was he was expecting like the 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 barrage from Khadiz to come nice and early but as the fight went on you saw a nice little pocket there under his elbow where I think that Mike Rodriguez would absolutely be able to um you know target his body kick something that he throws with such heat and even in the in the clinch exchanges man his knees up the middle are just nasty I just don't see how we see uh, Danilo Marquez stand up against this guy striking uh it, it's going to be very tough for him to eat those shots for him to really close that distance without eating uh, without eating many shots um and even getting this fight to the ground I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult than people are expecting uh, you know, Ed Herman, uh, crazy chin, rock hard chin. So he was able to eat some of those shots. He completed two takedowns against Mike Rodriguez, whereas uh, I think it's it's going to be a little bit harder for Daniel. Like he's a good jujitsu player or solid jujitsu player, uh, but his ability to get the fight to the ground is going to be his downfall. He's going to be able to complete it against guys like Hadis, but I think he's going to have a little bit of trouble dealing with guys like Mike. So uh, I understand why the line is wide. Uh, I'm truly on board with Mike Rodriguez. I think his Muay Thai is going to be too much here. His elbows, his knees, his kicks up the middle. I could absolutely see this fight 
being finished uh, by a body kick as well too as I think that like I said that that opposite stance here is really going to be key and I think it's going to allow Marquez or um, uh, Rodriguez to really dig his kicks in and really get it going uh, maybe start off with a couple uh, leg kicks to really open up the the inside leg kicks to really open up his kicks and then just go go to the body hard and that's what I'm expecting here I'd be surprised if we see Danilo actually complete a takedown and get him down and pull off a submission too because I don't think that his uh, submission game is really that high level even though he's a black belt uh, that doesn't always mean uh, you know that he's going to go out there and get a get a submission victory so I think uh, people need to reel it back even though that uh, Rodriguez lost via Kimura to Ed Herman last time around again he beat the crap out of him before uh, you know tiring out a little bit and allowing uh, Herman to get that submission I think if uh, you know if it was Danilo in that position he might not have been able to muster up the the energy to actually pull off that Kimura which is why I'm really uh, leaning with Mike Rodriguez here. I think that he just has uh, Danilo pretty much beat everywhere, everywhere other than having that black belt in jiu-jitsu, but I don't think it's going to be too much of a matter here. I think uh, Rodriguez probably gets him out of there in that first or second round. Uh, it's going to be bad. It, it's going to be a really bad beating on the feet because Mike Rodriguez is just miles ahead of there. Uh, obviously looks much comfortable on the feet. Uh, Danilo just does not look that at all. So I'm going with Mike Rodriguez. I'm saying first or second round KO. Um, I might even try to call my shot here. I think it's going to come from a body kick um, as, uh, yeah, just having it as exposed as, as Marquez does. And kind of like his length almost comes into as a, as, a, as a flock here because he has just so much body to work with and such a big target for uh, Rodriguez and his kick. So once again, I'll go with Mike Rodriguez to win this fight via first round KO. Michael Johnson versus Clay Guida. We got minus 225 on Michael Johnson and plus 185 on Clay Guida. We're seeing this line slowly starting to tighten up. It was roughly around minus 245 a couple of days ago. Uh, and now the money is coming in on Clay Guida. And I completely understand that why uh, as to why that's happening. So let's go over Michael Johnson. The unfortunate 19 and 16 record that he has. Uh, God damn. Like I, I put out a tweet a couple of days ago where I'm like, if you told me coming off that Edson Barboza win from Michael Johnson that, you know, he was 16 and 8 at that time, improved to 16 and 8 after beating Edson Barboza, that if you told me five or six years ago, or, um, you know, within five or six years, uh, he'd be 19 and 16 and going up against Clay Guida, I'd punch you in the mouth for disrespecting a guy like Michael Johnson, you know what I mean? But here we are. He's only won two fights in his last, what is that, three, six, eight fights. He's two and six in his last eight fights those two wins coming over uh, a split over Andre Feely and then he obviously unanimous decisions Artem Lobov who just doesn't know how to like do anything other than strike so Michael Johnson was absolutely going to go pick him apart there so let's just talk about the last three fights where he's pretty much winning all of these fights but then just has this slip up has this misstep that eventually gets him to you know uh give up the fight so the Josh Emmett fight he was going uh on his way to winning a decision in that fight and all you hear from his corner men is stay sharp stay disciplined stay sharp don't overextend like they're just reassuring him to be like dude you, you you're almost there we're about to cross the, the finish line and then uh josh emmett uncorks a beautiful overhand right puts uh, michael johnson out and uh he loses that fight then the next fight stevie ray drops the first round has a solid second round but in that third round he slips up stevie ray gets top position and pretty much rides it out even gets a 10-8 on one of the judges scorecards so he loses that fight 
Next one, Tiago Moises absolutely outstrikes him in that first round. Second round, something happens, slips. Uh, Tiago Moises ends up with the ankle lock and gets a tap within 25 seconds of that round starting. Like the guy just has these minor slip ups and it's just so unfortunate to see because I believe he's one of the more talented guys out there. You know, he's 34 years old. He's going to be 35 this year. I believe in June is his birthday. But you got to be very clear and 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 ca- like cautious when you're betting Michael Johnson fights because the guy has all the skills in the world. Like if this fight goes his way, he's going to look like a minus 600. But then he just has those momentary laps in judgment where something slips up, something happens, and his opponent is more than able to go out there and take advantage of it. Now you got a guy in Clay Guida who is just an engine nonstop going forward, forward, forward. Doesn't really mind what's coming back at him. Um... You know, even in the Bobby Green fight, very close fight where he's able to just go out there and just continuously try to take him down, try to take him down, uh, and he keeps moving forward. But Bobby Green, obviously a very good fighter, able to go out there and kind of just nullify the second and third rounds and get those and gets gets the decision victory there. I don't feel so comfortable in Michael Johnson being able to keep the range here against uh, Clay Guida. I feel like we will see him get the takedowns. I feel like we'll see him accrue that control time up against the cage, which is going to be very valuable, especially if if this fight goes to the judges' scorecards. Now, it's obviously possible that Michael Johnson could knock out Clay Guida. He has great, you know, great technique with his hands, one of the best boxers in the UFC. But again, he just has these momentary slip-ups, and I feel like, when you have a guy like Clay Guido who's able to go forward all the time, um, you know, grind you up against the cage. We're talking about a guy that has over, what is it, 50-something fights now. He's 35 and 20. He has 55 fights. He's going to have 50. This will be his 56th fight, 56th walk to the octagon. So, yeah, you bet he's definitely seen somebody like Michael Johnson in the past. Whereas Michael Johnson is just trying to string together a couple wins. Like, the guy just can't catch a break. If, if he loses here... He's probably getting his walking papers, which is absolutely crazy to think of a guy who we've had, you know, set uh, as high expectations as we had for Michael Johnson. If you guys remember, he was like the number one pick from uh, from the Ultimate Fighter, where it was GSP against uh, Koscheck, and uh, I believe he went on to lose that uh, to Jonathan Brookins, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I just want to go back and check that out. Yeah, he lost to Jonathan Brookins, but he beat Aaron Wilkinson, Alex Caceres, and Nam Fan on uh, on the Ultimate Fighter season twelve, and then loses a decision to Jonathan Brookins. Um, never really able to get his role going here. I mean, he had a solid four fight winning streak where he beat Joe Lozon, Gleison Tebow, Melvin Gillard, and Edson Barboza. Then he loses to Benio Darius, loses to Nate Diaz, beats Dustin Poirier, a very high level win there, and then from there it goes on that what is it, six or two and six run. It's just so sad to see for a guy like Michael Johnson. So how you can be confident in laying anything better than minus 200 on Michael Johnson or worse than minus 200 on Michael Johnson is beyond me. I don't care if it's Clay Guida in front of you. I mean, you just can't trust this guy. I'd say he's the most untrustworthy fighter in the UFC. And uh, yeah, like if Clay Guida hits that plus 200 mark, which I think he probably will, it might even be worth a play there just for the sake of it, just off of principle. You know what I mean? Clay Guida brings what you need in a guy that you're going to, that you know will go out there, uh, pursue the takedowns, pursue the clinch, try to uh, gain control time. And uh, we know he has that gas tank as well too. In terms of getting finished for Clay Guida, which is obviously a possibility for Michael Johnson here, um, we've seen Guida guillotine choke by Jim Miller in a fight where he hurt Jim Miller. Jim Miller hurts him back. Clay Guida goes for a takedown and he gets uh, submitted. All of that happening within 58 seconds. Before that, finished by Charles Oliveira via guillotine choke. Can you really bang on him for that? Uh, the Brian Ortega fight gets knocked out in the third round. Uh, Tiago Tafares chokes him out in 39 seconds. Dennis Bermudez rear naked chokes him. So it's like... 
it's iffy. You know, I mean, Michael Johnson could absolutely land a bomb on him and put him out and just pick him apart, but I'm not banking on that. I would rather go with the Clay Guida side. Um, you, you won't catch me uh, betting on uh, Michael Johnson out here unless he's able to put together like three or four straight victories where we see him mind his P's and Q's and, and just, just, just keeps his distance and picks his apart his opponent from the outside. That's when I'll be confident in betting Michael Johnson. But at this point in time, not me. So I'm picking Clay Guida here. I think he wins by decision. I think we just see him over and over again, just just grind on Michael Johnson, push him up against the cage, get him to the ground, maybe ride some top pressure. Uh, but I just don't think we see Michael Johnson comfortable enough on the feet to really get his combinations going. But it's going to be on Clay Guida to close that distance and continuously try to take this fight to the ground. So I'm going with Clay Guida. I think he wins this fight via decision. Not my most confident pick, as I do believe skill skill for skill, Michael Johnson blows him out of the water, but it all comes down to the mentality, it all comes down to the fight IQ, and you got to go with the Clay Guida side here rather than Michael Johnson. So I'll go with Clay to win this fight via decision. But Neil Darius versus Carlos Diego Fajera. We got minus 125 on CDF, and we got plus 105 on Benio Darius. Now, this is a rematch from a fight they had way back in October of 2014. So we're talking about just over six years ago that they first initially fought. That was the third fight for Carlos Diego Ferreira, and it was his first ever career loss as well, where Benio Darius did a really good job of going out there and controlling this fight uh, with takedowns, with, with the striking. You could definitely see that he was a little bit further ahead with his striking at that time, and he had joined Kings MMA not too long uh, before that, uh, whereas Carlos Diego Ferreira was still training by himself. He was his own head coach, had his own gym, uh, and, and really didn't realize what it took for him to truly make it to the next level in this game. Like uh, up until that point, he had already secured two victories, and he thought it was probably just going to be continue to be as easy as that. Goes out there, chokes out uh, Colton Smith in 38 seconds, and then he goes out there and uh, finishes Ramsey Najem. Uh, you know, a couple months after that, two months after that, uh, actually, uh, finishes him in the second round. Then he runs into Benio Dariush, uh, roughly two months after that as well, too. So his first three fights in the UFC all came within a four-month span. He just banged him out real quick. Uh, but then again, you know, it makes sense if you go out there, finish a guy in 40 seconds, finish a guy in six minutes, seven minutes, and then go out there and, and face a guy like Benio Dariush, like I said, much further along in his career at that time, especially in the UFC. And on top of that, um, you know, he, it's weird because he was the younger guy as well, too. Uh, we have about a five-year five age difference, but obviously Benio was fighting much better competition at, at that point in time. But the way Benny got the win that time was, again, over eight minutes or close to eight minutes of control time, pushing him up against the cage and really just doing him a little bit dirty. And again, in the striking exchanges, it definitely looked like Benio was a little bit further ahead. Since that amount of time, we've seen uh, Diego Fajera uh, lose to Dustin Poirier right after that. Again, you, you truly see the the how far behind he really was in the striking game, especially going up against a much tougher test in Dustin Poirier in that fight. And then he goes out there and gets knocked out in the first round. Very, very tough test. But since then, been on an absolute tear. That was actually his first fight with Fortis MMA as well, too, uh, with uh, against Dustin Poirier. But you can't really see the, the progression of a fighter, right? Like their first fight in that camp. And... What we have seen in that amount of time since uh, so it was April 2015 that we saw him get knocked out by Dustin Poirier. And now here he is, uh, you know, seven months afterwards, uh, starting a winning streak against Livio Obama-Mercier, Jared Gordon, uh, Kyle Nelson, Rustam Habilov, Merbek Tysimov, and Anthony Pettis. That's six straight wins that he's managed to put together in about five years' time uh, and very dominant uh, wins as well, too. I put this out on Twitter earlier today in terms of 
the, of the three fights that went to a decision for Carlos Diego Fajera since his Dustin Poirier loss, he's averaged 283 strikes thrown or attempted uh, per fight. Absolutely insane that he's putting up those types of numbers. Uh, even in the Jared Gordon fight, which only, which only lasted two seconds short of two minutes, he threw 60 strikes in that amount of time. Absolutely crazy, the pace and pressure and, and the coaching as well. we got to give a big hats off to uh, Save Sayud, who's really transformed the game of Diego Ferra from being, you know, just this jujitsu guy to, you know, being more comfortable on the feet. Like, if you go back and watch his fight with Benny and then you, you know, um, put it up against his fight with Mirbek Tysimov, you see a complete change in terms of his demeanor when it comes to the striking game. Like, he's he's not as stiff. He's bouncing around a little bit more. He's throwing combinations. Uh, he's moving very well. His head movement is good, too. Uh, his striking defense is definitely up there. He did get rocked a little bit by Mirbek, but didn't get dropped, but definitely got rocked in that fight. But then since that moment in that fight, that was in the first round, he just changed changed gears and really start to put it on Mirbeck and drowned him that was kind of the fight that really put me on like just reminded me okay th this is a guy that's been making changes and has made changes and came into that Mirbeck Tysonov as like a plus 250 underdog goes out there in Mirbeck Tysonov's pretty much his backyard over there in Abu Dhabi and goes out there and, and and puts it on him absolutely smashes him from pillar to post from the beginning of the fight to the the 15th minute I've never seen Mirbeck that roughed up in a fight so it really like uh really put me on notice with Diego Ferreira. Then in the Anthony Pettis fight, he goes in there, I think he has a pretty solid favorite, minus 235 favorite. I backed him there as my lock in the night play, uh, and he comes through for us. You know, Anthony Pettis really didn't have much for his pace and pressure style, and eventually found himself on his back, and uh, Anthony Pettis, or, and then we saw him sink in the choke. Interesting thing about that choke as well, too, you see it on the side of the head, rather than like fully on the back with the hooks in and all that, but the squeeze of Diego Ferreira is just absolutely insane. So he's able to get Anthony Pettis out there relatively well. That that was about two minutes into that second round. Well, Benio Dariush on the flip side, we're talking about a guy that went on to lose uh, th three fights since he beat um, Carlos Diego Ferreira. He also went to a draw with Evan Dunham. But uh, since his last time, Alexander Hernandez, where he got starched in 42 seconds, that was in uh, March of 2018. Uh, he comes back in November of that year and takes Tiago Moises to a decision. That's a fight where he accrued over 13 and a half minutes of control time. And I believe he played that fight as safe as possible to kind of, uh, you know, um, to, to avoid another knockout loss. Tiago Moises is a guy, mainly a jiu-jitsu guy, but we've seen some advancements with his hands and he has a nasty head kick as well, which he's actually secured a couple knockout victories with. So I think that's what Benio Darius was trying to avoid in that fight. Uh, Drew Dober fight, it was looking interesting for Drew Dober in that first round. You know, Benio was the one on his back foot. Uh, Drew was the one moving forward, landing a lot of good shots, did a good job of staying out of bad positions in that first round. But unfortunately, in that second round, we saw a little bit of a poor fight IQ from Drew Dober, who got out of bad positions, but then just went back to grappling and, and tried taking advantage of the clinch positions. That's where we saw Benio Darius really flip the square, script, uh, you know, hit a switch on him, get his back, uh, get his back eventually, and then work towards that armbar and gets, just pulls off a beautiful armbar with 19 seconds left in that second round. Very unfortunate loss for Drew Dober, who's looking really good in that fight. 
Then we see him go out there against Frank Camacho, um, you know, get the rear naked choke there, has an absolute war against Dracar Close in a fight where the majority of that first round he spent on the back of Dracar Close in a standing position, just wasn't able to pull off a rear naked choke. And then eventually in that second uh, round, we see them go to war. Uh, Dracar Close lands a lot of bombs, and then Benio Darius comes back and lands his bombs and eventually knocks him out uh, with a, probably one of the craziest finishes we've seen, or at least sequences that we saw in 2020. Uh, and then against Scott Holtzman, you know what I mean? Uh, hurt Scott Holtzman early with a beautiful knee in the clinch uh, and then follows up with the barrage. Um, Holtzman saves himself a little bit, but eventually falls into the brawl once again. And we see Benel Darius lands a beautifully placed spinning back fist. It almost looked like an elbow as well too. What I've been seeing from Benny as of late is he doesn't mind engaging in these firefights anymore. Like he he believes he has the durability and the chin to do it. And what what can you say? It's been a long time since we saw him knocked out against Alexander Hernandez, coming up on three years now. Um, and he's more than willing to go into that and and, and exchange with these guys. Um, we saw him kind of attacking the grappling every now and then with some of these guys, but. But it seems like he's very confident in his hands and obviously doing very good work with Kings MMA and, and Rafael Codero. And it just continues to show on a fight-to-fight basis that the, this guy has great kicks, uh, great punches, um, you know, solid Muay Thai, great knees in the Muay Thai clinch as well, like we saw against Scott Holtzman. But I feel like the changes that we've seen from uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira is definitely going to be the factor here like his pace and pressure of just always pushing these guys back is i think it's going to catch up to benil here benil you see in these fights that are going into the second round but end up getting a finish he seems to be sucking wind a little bit now i'm not saying that he has a cardio issue or anything like that but i'd be interested to see how he deals with a guy uh who's going to be pushing forward the entire time uh pushing him up against the cage it's a smaller cage as well too so less room for uh benil to really you know pivot out of these bad spots um I'd be interested to see if it doesn't, if Benny doesn't get the finish in the first round and a half, how he deals with that pressure of Carlos. Like we've seen improvements from Carlos, especially in those grappling exchanges. Like Rustam Habilov goes out there and lands, I believe, three or four takedowns on him, but doesn't even accrue more than one minute of take or of control time. Like just like a, a cat, Carlos Diego Ferreira is just right back on his feet. He's very aware and 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 has a good understanding of the fact that okay the longer that my back is on the ground and i'm sure he learned it from the benil darius fight the more that he's losing this fight and he does a good job of just never conceding position anymore he he might get taken down but he does a good job of getting right back to his feet and working back to his feet i feel like his jujitsu on par with benil at this point in time especially his mma jujitsu that's something that we're seeing in a, an improvement from. But again, it's definitely his hands, his forward pressure, and his uh, his willingness to be comfortable in that fight, uh, in a fight, and just move forward and know that, okay, no matter what this guy throws at me, I can continue to walk forward through it. And then eventually he, his cardio, his confidence is all going to be sucked dry. And what's left is going to be me moving forward and really putting it on you. And that's what, I'm, uh, what I believe Safe Sayud has truly invested in Carlos's game which has allowed him to make as many improvements as he has uh, I think you know at 36 he doesn't have much time to to keep this ball rolling especially with that type of game plan so uh, getting a big fight like this against Benio Darius is huge for him if he gets victory here that's back-to-back -back wins over Anthony Pettis say what you want about him it's still a name to get under your belt and then also uh, Benio Darius who's also on a, a solid win streak of his own now five straight uh, fights for him so I like Diego Fajera here. I like him roughly around that even money. We got minus 125. I think that's a solid line too. And I think this is going to be a prime example 
of seeing fighters who probably weren't ready for the big stage but have made strides and improvements while they're on the big stage and we've seen a, a complete change in the game of Diego Ferreira his comfortability on the feet uh you know his his pace and pressure like I said right off the bat I love that his cardio seems amazing as well too it's always his opponents that are sucking wind by the time that third round comes uh so I'm interested to see if he's able to do do the same thing here to Benio Darius being the being the guy that's just moving forward the entire time being the bull and again Benio Darius has solid striking so he could be a solid matador as well too but from what I've seen with Benio Darius he's or sorry with uh, Diego Ferreira is solid durability solid chin and he should be able to move forward and and just just rag just just rag on uh, Benio Darius this entire time so I'm liking Carlos I think he wins by decision I wouldn't be surprised to see the the durability of uh, Benio uh, catch up with him over these next couple of fights like again he hasn't been knocked down in the stretch since his alexander hernandez fight but he has definitely eaten some damage and has definitely been wobbled and stunned a couple of times uh, i don't know if uh, carlos will be the one that that puts him out but i definitely think that he can give him some trouble but i'll go with diego fajera to win this fight via decision and uh, continue this fortis fajera run that he's on since his loss to dustin poirier way back in 2014 and 15 i, I believe his last two benio was in 2014 his last two dustin poirier was in april of 2015 so since then he's really turned the tide and gotten some solid victories under his belt and i think that this will be another one that he gets to act to add to his mantle uh so once again i'll go with diego fajera to win this fight via decision Cody Stamen versus Andre Ewell. We got minus 300 on Cody Stamen and plus 250 on Andre Ewell. Let's start off with Andre Ewell, who's coming off a successful victory last time around over Erwin Rivera, where he was able to land over 120 strikes on uh, Rivera there. I think he outstruck him roughly by 40 strikes, but that was pretty much the, the tail of that fight. He used his reach advantage to a, a very good manner, uh, was able to use it very effectively as well as his movement. He used a couple of kicks in there as well to try to keep Rivera on the outside, but for the most part was very good in terms of in my opinion, keeping a one-dimensional Erwin Rivera on the outside. And that's where the difference is here against Cody Stamen, where Ewell will still have over a 10.5-inch reach advantage, as well as, I believe, a 4-inch height advantage, too. Now, Ewell, long, uh, scrawny-ish, um, and, and has that frame of his that he uses very effectively at 135 pounds against guys that of Erwin, level, Erwin Rivera's level. But I think he starts to struggle once he goes up there in, a, in level of competition. Now, I think the the highest level of competition we've seen him face to date is, I'd say, either Nathaniel Wood or Marlon Vera. And I believe those guys are like top 15-ish, between top 15 and top 20-ish types of guys. Cody Stamen, I, be I believe, was all those guys out of the water in terms of just level of competition. This is easily the highest level that we've seen Andrea will go up against and the highest level of wrestling as well, too. And the reason I bring up wrestling is I, I believe that will be a big part here in terms of uh, Cody Stamen getting his uh, his hand raised. And we're talking about Andrea Ewell, who in six UFC fights has given up over or close to 20 minutes of control time. And that's, again, not even against a high-level wrestler or a grappler like we've seen of uh, Cody Stamen's level. Um, Rivera also again like not not very well well versed 
in the in the striking realm like the, he likes to blitz forward and and tries to catch his opponents that way because more often than not he's the shorter guy uh Stamen, obviously roughly around the same height but he does a good job in terms of incorporating kicks and combinations to close that distance rather than just blitzing forward and crashing forward and hoping to land some good shots now we did see rivera successful at the end of his fight with andre you to get him down and have some control time there but it was just not uh, enough for him to get the decision there as i believe he should have been able to do that more effectively throughout the fight but again i just don't think if he's at that level to truly get to that point um I, I I also don't believe that Andre Ewell has a good get-up game, and that's something that they referred to, uh, I believe, in his last fight or the fight before that, where they're like, okay, it looks like Ewell's really working on his get-up game and really, you know, working on their takedown defense. And yeah, he shocked, I believe, 22 out of 30 uh, takedown attempts against him, but again, he's just not fought anybody to the level of Cody Stamen and being able to, like, cut angles when going for takedowns or chain takedowns together as well, too. That's just something that Andre Yu has not seen while being in the UFC. So I think he's really going to find himself stuck under Stamen for the majority of this fight, if that's the way that Stamen goes about it, because I believe, just like he did in that Song Yudong fight, that Song might have had a little bit too much firepower for him on the feet, so he was successful in getting that, down, that fight to the ground over five times. He still came away with the majority draw there but he showed that he can definitely go out there and take these guys down and we're talking about song Yudong training at team alpha male getting his grappling reps in so to get a guy like that down was very very impressive for statement on a, on a time and time again matter Irwin only went one of nine on takedowns because he just didn't set them up properly against Andre Ewell he completes that last takedown with I believe like 15 or 30 seconds left and does a good job of holding him down for that amount of time but uh, again you need more control time than that uh, Cody Stamen, on the other hand, in his last three fights alone, he's fought much better strikers with much heavier power and still never gave up a, a knockdown. You know what I mean? You're talking about uh, Jimmy Rivera, one of the best fighters in that division, probably top 10, I'd say. Solid striking, solid foundation, solid wrestling of his own. So Stamen couldn't even go to that side, which is why Rivera was able to be so, so successful in that fight, landing the better shots. Brian Keller, we know all about his knockout power. The guy has power for days. And he fought a prototypical fighter like Cody Stamen in his fight before that against um, Hunter Azure. Hunter Azure not able to get him down. Um, you know, did, dealt, did not deal with the striking as well as Cody Stamen. And one thing I do, do want to talk about in that Cody Stamen fight with Brian Keller is that there, there's a there's a sequence in that second round where Brian Keller lands a beautiful combination, uh, lands just to the back of the head of uh, Cody Stimmon. Doesn't rock or hurt Cody Stimmon, but it looked like a good enough shot to give Brian Keller some uh, confidence. And usually when strikers get confidence, they start going out there and start throwing in more combinations, thinking they have their guys on the ropes. Whereas Cody Stamen, you know, takes that shot. Brian Keller throws a couple more shots and we see perfect striking defense from Cody Stamen. And then not only that, he doesn't revert to his his habit or his first martial art, which, which would be uh, wrestling. He goes out there and throws strikes of his own back. Like he goes out there, throws combinations, evades a couple of shots, lands a couple of shots of his own, and start, brings that confidence level of Brian Keller down to where it was before he landed that big shot. Uh, you know, in the, at the beginning of that sequence. So that just shows me the type of fighter that Cody Stamen is. Small things like that where he goes out there and just stands his ground uh, and showcases that he's just not a wrestler. He's a striker too. He has solid hands, he has solid kicks, and he has a good uh, sense of being able to close the distance. Uh, and you just have trouble in terms of reading what's going to co come next at you, whether it's a strike, whether it's a takedown, whatever it is. He does a really good job in terms of hiding his strikes like that and hiding his, his hand. He has a great poker face when it comes to uh, truly coming forward and landing the offense that he needs to, to really get his hand raised there. 
Uh, he's gotten knocked down zero times. He's fought however many times in the UFC, got knocked down zero times, and fought a ton of power punches in that amount of time, too. So that's a huge credit to him as well, too. And then he goes out there and outstrikes Brian Kelleher, 89 to 56. Again, prototypically a wrestler in Cody Stimmen going out there and outstriking a striker uh, by nearly 30, 33 strikes, I want to call it. Right, that, that that's got to be impressive. That's very very impressive. Again, against Jimmy Rivera, completely stylistically like a different matchup. Just does not add up uh, to to be a good stylistic matchup for uh, Cody Stamen. Andre Ewell, on the other hand, like he has hand speed, solid hand speed, decent movement, decent maintenance of range against some guys. But I think he's going to have a ton of problems here dealing with a guy like Cody Stamen that can attack him from so many different levels in the MMA game from the striking. I think the striking is not going to look as uh, there, there won't be a disparity in the striking realm as much as I believe some people think. And then obviously in the grappling and the, and the wrestling realm, we know where it's going to be. We're not going to see uh, Andre Iwo go out there and pull off some Aljamain type of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And we've only seen uh, Andre Iwo knock down one guy in his UFC career, and that was his first fight against Henan Brown. Since then, hasn't recorded one knockdown. So I don't see how we can mathematically put together a way that Andre Ewell wins this fight. And at minus 300, I think, it, you know, at all indications, you can say that uh, Cody Stamen wins this fight 8 out of 10 times or 9 out of 10 times. That's how my level of confidence is here with uh, with Stamen. I think he's a high-level fighter, top 15, might even crack the top 10 one day. But uh, I, I think he's a solid fighter that will push away guys like Andre Ewell, who, in my opinion, just aren't in that top 15 yet. Um, yeah, stylistically horrible matchup for Ewell. I think he, if if Cody Stamen wants to go out there and attack the wrestling, he can take him down time and time again. And uh, if he wants to go out there and uh, kind of strike with him and show him, okay, I can make this a striking fight, I think he can remain relatively competitive in that realm too. Um, but again, it's all to eventually set up that takedown. If uh, Stamen goes out there and shoots zero takedowns uh, or lands zero takedowns, I'd be absolutely surprised. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be flabbergasted if we don't see Cody Stamen uh, succeed on a couple of takedowns here. But I do think he takes him down uh, pretty much at will, rides out that top position, maybe get some ground and pound going. Uh, and again, I think he has good enough top pressure and top game to hold Ewell down and stay out of any submissions that might be coming his way. So, um, yeah. I, I like Cody Stamen here. I think he can get it done via decision. Not much of a finisher. And Ewell has shown... Uh, well, he has been submitted by uh, Cody Stam or sorry, um, Nathaniel Wood, and uh, there was one more, and Marlon Vera, where he went out there and just absolutely grounded upon him, uh, beautiful elbows as well to finish that fight. So uh, I, I don't think we'll see a finish out of Cody Stamen here, but I do, do think that we'll absolutely see him outclass Andre Ewell in this fight, taking him down repetitively and uh, or repeatedly, I should say, and, and working for that decision victory. So once again, Cody Stamen via decision. Manal Cape versus Alexandre Pantoja. We got minus 145 on Pantoja and plus 125 on the newcomer Manal Cape. Let's start off with Alexandre Pantoja first and foremost, who's coming off a loss to uh, Askar Askarov last time around. That fight was back in July uh, of last year, and it seems like uh, he's taking a little bit of time off. He was scheduled to fight Manal Cape on uh, the last card of 2020, December 19th. However, Pantoja had to withdraw, uh, and now they're rescheduling it for, for this upcoming card. And it's a great fight, and it definitely tells you what the UFC thinks of Manel Cape, especially putting him up against a guy like Alexandre Pantoja, who's a, a top 10 flyweight at this point in time. So, uh, speaking of the last fight that Pantoja was in uh, against Askar Askarov, that's, where, that's a fight that he had a solid first round where 
you know, we were getting a grapple-heavy attack from Askarov. However, Pantoja did a good job of kind of reversing position and even had his back for a little bit and then an, and ended up winning that round on all three judges' scorecards. The next two rounds, however, was a little bit more so on the Askarov side, as it felt like uh, Pantoja was starting to slow down a little bit, and this fight, you know, mainly contested uh, in the grappling realm in the second uh, grappling realm in the second round, and then the striking realm in the third round. And Askarov was able to get the better of uh, Pantoja in both of those rounds, getting the judges nod there. Uh, we really start to see like there's always this narrative out there for Pantoja where he starts to slow down a little bit in the second and third rounds. And he did a good job of going scramble for scramble in that second round against Askarov, you know, even getting his back at a certain point. However, in that third round, it seemed like his striking defense was very much lacking due to, you know, possibly, a, a, again, a compromised gas tank, Askarov being a little bit fresher and landing the better shots, especially his jab from that southpaw position was just on point. And Pantoja just wasn't able to react quick enough to really get out of the way of those shots. You know, Pantoja... A little bit of a one and done when it comes to the striking room, especially in the second and third rounds, which is why I think he's going to have to go out there and really implement his uh, grappling game to get the better of Manel Cape. That's where we see Cape uh, struggle a little bit whenever he does go up against those types of guys. Pantoja is still, in my opinion, a top, potentially top five, top 10 flyweight, but I think he needs to really focus on what, what got him to the dance. In my opinion, that's really just going after his uh, grappling, going out there and trying to submit these guys as he is a high level jujitsu black belt. Um, and again, he comes from a great team in uh, American Top Team that allows him to really, uh, you know, um, kind of exaggerate his, his technique and, and his skills that, that make him that much better. Uh, he is an Ultimate Fighter 24 alum. He lost in the semifinals. Uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. It was a, it was a Japanese cat. Um, Hiromasa Ogokubo. Absolutely butchered that name, but I, I gave it a try. I gave it a try. If you guys remember, that was that... Um, that, was that um, that, that season of the Ultimate Fighter where they brought in all different uh, promotional champions from all over the world and they all competed to see who would fight um, uh, Demetrius Johnson at the time because they just could not find any more contenders for Johnson. And uh, I believe it was Tim Elliott that ended up winning that, uh, that, that season and going on to fight Demetrius Johnson for the title. Uh, but yeah, I still think that we do see some solid skills from Pantoja, you know, decent striking. Again, he knocked out Matt Schnell in that, uh, in their fight. They had a crazy start to the fight where they're just trading in the pocket. It seemed like Pantoja knew that Schnell's chin was slightly compromised and he could be knocked out. So he tried testing it right off the bat. They weren't able to get it going right off the bat. Uh, it was weird that I saw that, uh, Matt Schnell jumped guard for some reason in a very questionable decision, especially guy, especially after rocking Pantoja and then obviously taking into consideration Pantoja's jiu-jitsu uh, expertise uh, you know Pantoja eventually found his way back to the feet they started exchanging a little bit more and we saw a beautiful counter overhand right from uh, Pantoja after Schnell threw a nice body shot and absolutely landed like dead smack in the middle of Schnell's face it forced him to, to kind of collapse face first onto the mat and uh, the, the referee stopped the fight after that so I, I think that Pantoja when you see him at his best he's going out there and getting first round finishes Matt Schnell, uh, again, very um, interesting fight there again because he, he did get rocked early. He didn't get dropped, but he did get rocked 
Uh, very questionable fight IQ from Ajna in terms of pulling guard rather than following up with some more shots there. Uh, Wilson Hayes finishes him in the first round. Luka Sasaki finishing him in the first round. Brandon Moreno fight was interesting because he did a good job of kind of just implementing his game and winning that fight. But the Davison Figueredo loss, that's just Figueredo marching him down, uh, landing the better shots overall, uh, and then, uh, you know, knocked him down once as well too, uh, but just wasn't able to get the finish. And then Askar Askarov goes out there and wins the second and third round. So, Against Manal Cape here, who's coming in from the Risen scene, uh, he's been on a lot of people's radars, especially after he beat, um, uh, originally he beat Ian McCall. It was a, a facial cut caused by a knee, so that was a, a stoppage. Then he goes out there, he loses to uh, Kyoji Horoguchi, uh, where he was getting uh, pretty much all grappled uh, in that fight. Kayasakura has a very close fight with him, uh, you know, going strike for strike. Is, is some solid top control from Asakura in that fight too, but we did see Manal Cape land some really good shots there as well. Uh, Nakamura, I don't really rate that guy too much. However, we do see Manal Cape go out there and get the rear naked choke. Uh, and again, when he goes out there and fights a grappler, a heavy opponent, uh, and Aluka Sasaki, he finds himself on the bottom and cannot really get out of those bad positions. And Aluka wins that fight by decision. Next three fights uh, Ito, uh, Mizugaki, and Asakura. He finishes them all by fin. Uh, by knockout um and it really shows when he's at his best what it looks like and that's what the striking heavy approach now my concern here though is he's a little bit low output one and under with his combinations not really throwing much in combinations uh but he's very flashy has a big mouth likes to be uh you know really flamboyant if you want to call it that in the cage uh likes to talk a lot it reminds me of a little bit about uh kevin holland in terms of kind of just um goading on his opponent and just really trying to get them to overextend uh but it's striking looks really good at times um he's very explosive and squirmish as well on the ground so you do have to you know make sure that you go position over submission with this guy especially when you take him to the ground uh as he does a good job sometimes of getting out of those positions but the more you wear on him on the ground the less he is likely to get out of those positions and that's where i think that pantoja has the advantage here now can you go in and really like um bank on pantoja uh to to um to go after the takedowns to 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 pursue the takedowns i think so like again coming from a team like american top team you got to believe that these guys know that okay uh pantoja might be outstruck on the feet here especially the longer this fight goes. So the best way to get the, the victory here is probably to take this to the ground and try to pull off some, some jiu-jitsu and, and pull off a choke of some sort. And I think that's the approach that we'll see from Pantoja here. And I think we'll see him be successful with it. Now the line is, you know, it was roughly around minus 125. Now we're getting minus 145 for Pantoja. And I'm thinking people are starting to see the 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 flaws in Cape's game once this fight does get taken to the ground. And another... Um, interesting caveat to add to this is this is the first time in a while that we're going to see cape fighting in a cage you know he's been fighting over there in risen we know they usually fight in a ring uh with ropes and stuff so i'm interested to see how he approaches this fight uh you know being pushed up against the cage especially if he's on bottom how uncomfortable that really is for a fighter uh you know here's to hoping that he's been training alongside a cage and really starting to get how that feels because i truly think it's a different uh a completely different fight especially when you're in the when you're implementing the ground uh the clinch positions up against the cage it's completely different you know what i mean so um i think pantoja's experience here should give him the edge 
um, you know, only three years older, but has been in the UFC for a lot longer time, has been fighting high-level competition this entire time as well, too. And uh, I think he has a solid enough chin to to kind of survive whatever Cape has to throw at him uh, in the earlier parts of this round. But that that's where I think it's important for Pantoja. He's going to have to get this fight to the ground, as I believe that Cape could one-and-done combination him for rounds two and three if it comes down to it. Almost look like a, a Davison-Figueredo fight, possibly, if this fight does get extended. So I like Pantoja early. I think we'll see him get the takedown. I think we'll see him pull off a submission, too. But the longer that this fight goes, I kind of give it more so to, to Cape side here. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see Pantoja get takedowns later in this fight as well. So um, very close fight. Probably going to stay with it, but I'll go with the UFC vet here. I think that we'll see uh, Pantoja get the takedowns and eventually pull off a submission early in this fight. Um, what is the submission prop, too? Uh, that's actually something I want to see. I feel like if it's better than like plus 400 on uh, Pantoja, it might be a good spot. Uh, Pantoja by sub plus 25, yeah. Uh, getting a little uh, greedy there, thinking that it'll be a better price. But yeah, I got Pantoja here. Close fight. Um, glad that we finally got... Um, cape in the ufc i think we'll see some fun fights with him and he's going to be a great character as well in the ufc but i think this is a very tough test for him for his first fight in the ufc um again he's, he's fought some solid guys in risen asakura huraguchi and those guys but i think that uh pantoja and some of these other guys are going to be a little bit too much for him so uh i'll go with um i'll go with pantoja to win this fight via first round submission Macy Kiasson versus Marion Renault. We got minus 210 on Kiasson and plus 175 on Renault. And it seems like the line is slowly moving towards uh, Renault's side. We had minus 240 originally on Macy Kiasson. And now we're seeing a little bit of love come in on Renault. Let's start off with Kiasson. Obviously, she won the Ultimate Fighter. I believe it was season 28. Um, it goes on to be Patty Kianzad in the finals to uh, to notch that victory there and, and bring home the Ultimate Fighter uh, title or whatever they they want to call it award um and uh since then she's gone on a three and one streak um losing to lena landsberg in there uh, just before her last fight where she took on shana young on relatively short notice uh she did replace if i'm not mistaken it was um nico montano shana young comes in on super short notice again she's a 125 or coming up to 135 uh and it definitely showed in that fight against uh Kiasson. we saw Kiasson uh get close to eight and a half minutes of control time in that fight and did not let shanna young breathe at all like she just pushed her up against the cage she bullied her she used her strength her size um and, and that's what she does in the majority of her fights like outside of the gina mazani fight where she just was you know bombing on her and eventually landed a beautiful shot to put her down um you know her Penny kianzad fight her sarah Maraz fight uh lena landsberg fight at least in that first round and then obviously the the majority of that shana young fight we see her go out there and just just push her opponents up against the cage there's a there's instances where like her opponent will like dig an underhook turn her uh and try to get out of the way but macy Kiasson just drives all the way through and it looks like she, sometimes she's just going to spear her opponent through the actual cage and it's 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 insane it, it just goes to show how much power and strength and muscle that she uses in those situations and then you see when she's not able to get her opponents out of there especially in that fight against nina landsberg that it starts to wear on her a little bit like her cardio starts to catch up to her um and that's where we saw lena really start to turn things around and that's 
second and third round and getting control time of her own. If I'm not mistaken, we saw Lena Landsberg notch just close to eight minutes of control time there. The majority of them, uh, seven, seven minutes and 45 seconds to be exact. But the majority of it coming in the second and third rounds when, uh, you know, we saw Kiasan really start to slow down. Kiasan had four and a half minutes of control time against Lena Landsberg in that first round. So it definitely wore on her. And I think her win conditions are pretty much predicated on her going out there and get the finish over her opponents. And that's where I think things get a little bit crazy. Uh, Macy Kiasan comes into the Ultimate Fire. I think she was only 2-0 or 3-0 and then gets into the, the UFC with a 3-0 or 4-0 record. Very green for sure. Even on the regional scene, she went, I believe, 4-2. and Um... You know, she, she she still seems a little bit uncomfortable on the feet. She has definitely she definitely has power in her hands, but the majority of her wins come from her just like out out muscling her opponents, and she's able to get the finish sometimes. Again, Sarah Morass uh, a little bit overextends herself at times. She did get the takedown right off the bat, but then eventually got reversed, and then we saw Kiasa really start to rain on her with her strengths in that second round to get that KO. Um, Gina Mazzini knocks her out in about two minutes. Pani Kianzad. Uh, close to getting submitted in that fight just in the Sarah Maras fight I believe it was the Maras fight where we saw right at the ending of that first round that she was in a, a bit of a, a pickle in terms of uh, Maras having, having a pretty decent arm bar on her she was lucky that she had the cages there and also that the time was expiring in that first round but I'd be interested to see how it looked if one, if it was Marion Renault there, and two, if they were in a slightly better position. Again, we saw Pani Kianzad get in on some uh, arm bars herself as well, too. Uh, and uh, we saw uh, Kiasong get out of there. Uh, I was very impressed with how we saw Kianzad finish Penny. Um as it, it, she got her back and then she traps her arm so it allows for more uh, opportunity for her to get around her neck and that's exactly what she did how she ended up getting the rear naked choke um but man i, I just see some flaws in her game like uh, at first i'm like okay the, you know she's a bright prospect she's 29 years old she still has time to really flesh out she trains at fortis mma you guys know i have a hard on for fortis um but uh she still so shows some rawness and some greenness in her game and even though marine renault is 43 approaching 44 in june um she still shows that she can still go out there and and have some solid fights like she's on a three fight losing streak right now but that third round against Ziana kuninskaya was just one-way traffic like she's absolutely busting her up and beating her up and uh if this fight does get extended again we've never seen marine renault finished in her i believe it's 16 fights she's never been finished um so her durability is definitely still there and she's putting in the work like she still looks in great shape um you know she her uh, in her last fight against Raquel Pennington, we saw Pennington put on a solid performance from, from pillar to post in terms of striking, mixed in with clinching. She did a good job in terms of just clinch-fucking Marine Renault. But the difference here between Pennington and Kiasan is Kiasan pretty much just goes out there and tries to clinch-fuck the entire fight. And that's what starts to burn her muscles and starts to burn her cardio. Whereas Raquel Pennington, we saw she mixed in some solid combinations, some good striking, some good takedown attempts, and then clinching. And then she was able to kind of clinch and control that fight in that third round, uh, I do want to try to get the numbers here from the Pennington fight. Yeah, Pennington controlled her for five and a half minutes. Uh, and that third round, we saw her control for about two minutes there. So nearly half the round. But that was, you know, that was on the back end of her having a complete... Um, you know, a mixed martial arts matchup. And that's where I think it gets a little bit difficult for Kiasan. If she's not able to get her opponents out of there, things get very, very fishy for her. And I think in that third round, things could get fishy as well too. 
out of the nine wins that Marvin Renault has, four of them have come in either in the second round or the third round by finish. Uh, I think most notably her last one was against um, Sarah McMahon, uh, and that was actually her last win. That was in the second round. But before that, she beats Toledo Bernardo in the third round, uh, and then even uh, two fights before that, she beats Milana Dudieva in round three via ground and pound two. So uh, I, I think Renault's live here, <laughs> and I, I'm super stunned to say that, especially for like a 43-year-old fighter. But Kiasan still makes some mistakes in the Shana Young fight. Like she's heavily overextending herself to try to implement her grappling game, her clinch game. Again, she's much bigger. She's fighting a woman that's technically a weight class below her. Um, and you know there were instances where she's trying to get her down and just uh, kind of you know overextends, and we see Shana Young kind of uh, not totally capitalized, but get into positions where she could potentially take her back. And Renault, being a black belt herself too, I think she could take advantage of those positions. Now the spot that I'm looking at is I'm hoping and waiting that we see Maureen Renault become a bigger dog. The trend right now is that the line is closing a little bit more, but I'd like to see. Uh, I think we'll also see some people going out there and betting Macy Kiasan as this fight week goes on and if we get that plus 200 on Renault I might have to take a little bit of a shot there and I'm talking about like a 0.5 unit stab because I still think that Kiasan is going to be the stronger one she could have her success in the clinch but it, it depends on what type of game plan she brings is she just going to go out there and just try to outpower Renault for three rounds because then it gets fishy in that third round we we've seen Renault come back from from uh you know from fights before where she's down and she comes back and has a very strong third round the spots that I'm looking at, Renault via sub, plus 625. Uh, Renault round three, I think, is plus 1900. I think those are going to be some solid spots here, given that Kiazon doesn't really show the best of her skills in that third round, especially if she's just heavy on the clinch, heavy on the muscling, out-muscling her opponents, and just grinding her opponents up against the cage. So I could definitely see Renault taking advantage of those certain situations, but it all depends on how Kiazon uh, really um, approaches this fight. And... I don't know about you guys, but again, Kiasan just doesn't look the most comfortable in the striking situations. Like she throws good powers, but her shots are a little bit winging and and they're a little bit wide. I think yeah, uh, Renault could definitely take advantage of those spots too. It's just the strength, it's the youth, and that clinch situation. As Kiasan does have some very nasty knees, and she's very persistent with it too. Like her output is solid, but again, the later fights get, the more fishy it gets. And I think that this is a spot where Renault could potentially take advantage in those later rounds. So if this fight reaches that third round uh the live odds might be absolutely crazy for for renault to win it and i wouldn't mind taking a little bit of a shot there but if we also see renault reach plus 200 i might have to it's my probably forcing my hand here i absolutely see the the, the finish where uh Kiasan just grinds hunter but i think that she just exerts too much energy in those uh situations She's still young in her uh, career, so maybe she's making some improvements and trying to round out her game. But Renault, you know, she she started in the game late too. She started when she was 33 years old. She's 43 now, so she's been around for 10 years. But out of all the competition that she's gone up against, she's never been finished, which is very impressive to me. Um, so yeah, I I can't believe I'm saying it. I like Maureen Renault here, and I think she pulls off a third round submission victory. Uh, those props are definitely something I'll be chasing this uh, for this coming event. Uh, but I'm. I might make a small play on Renault here, depending on what the odds, uh, you know, shake out to be as fight week goes. And I can see people just parlaying Macy Kiasan just because she's a solid favorite and seemingly on paper should go out there and beat a girl like Renault. But uh, Renault's a dog, man. She's been in some wars. She's been she's been in some tough fights, and it doesn't seem like Kiasan is that good of a nail. Uh, but she's a damn good hammer for sure. So. 
if she can get Renault out of there in those first two rounds, I think she'll be okay. However, if this fight does end up going into that third round and we see, you know, a solid amount of control time for Akiasson in those first two rounds, that third round is going to be very, very fishy. So I'll go with Renault. Third round submission. Call me crazy, um, but uh, but I'm doing it. I, I, I think she has a solid spot. So I'll wait for that plus 200. I think we'll get it. Um, but yeah, th those props as well. Sub plus 625 and round three plus 1950, I think is a solid spot for Renault. So once again... I'll go Marie and Renault to win this fight via third round submission. Corey Sandhagen versus Frankie Edgar. We got minus 440 on Corey Sandhagen and plus 350 on Frankie Edgar. Let's start off with Corey Sandhagen, who's coming off a very impressive performance over Marlon Moraes, where he finished him in the second round. A lot of people thought he was going to drag him into that third round um, and possibly finish him there, but he got it done a lot quicker uh, and was able to really put it on Marlon uh, Moraes. Really just frustrated him and 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 confuse him and and just fluster him with the amount of uh you know attacks and feints and and just a style overall you know Corey Sandhagen really brings a very unorthodox style to the MMA cage and really makes it difficult for his opponents to really get a beat on what he's doing you know the only person to beat him as of late was Aljamain Sterling two fights ago where right out to shoot the guy takes him down immediately and turns into the human backpack eventually rocking locking up a rear naked choke a minute and a half into that fight now that fight was pretty much a pick em going into it and a lot of people didn't expect it to end that quickly however Aljamain Sterling found his path to victory and knew it had to be quick and and precise and that's that's exactly what he did able to get this fight down to to the mat immediately and he is a strong individual when it comes to the grappling game so I believe uh Sandhagen is a purple belt but at times it shows that he's even much much better than that however Aljamain Sterling would just threw all that shit out the window and was like this is my world now and he took full advantage of it so solid work there from Aljamain Sterling but he's been the only guy to really solve this Corey Sandhagen puzzle as of late just because he goes in there and just does all this wacky shit but a huge part of his game in my opinion has got to be his feints because he really gets his opponents thinking okay is he going to throw it is he not going to throw it what is he going to throw next how, you know how am I supposed to close his distance when he's always uh, you know hitting me on the entry um but he does a good job of kind of pulling the punches out of his opponents and then really capitalizing after that you know he's able to get away with throwing so much spinning shit and flying shit and just unorthodox stuff because his foot movement footwork is really good and he's able to get out of the way of these big shots coming his, coming his way from his opponents like that John Lineker fight was an absolutely great uh you know um showcase of of how effective he can be against some of these fighters that are just a little bit more slow plotting and might have tons of power in their hands then he goes on there and beats uh Rafael Asuncao after that and shows us that he's ready for the big stage that he's ready for the big names and the guys that are up there in that top three range I believe Asuncao was number three at that time or number four at most he was ranked number nine he goes out there and absolutely beats him you know from minute one to minute 15 the only time we've ever really seen him in trouble is when grappling exchanges really get going you know Rafael Asuncao did have a little bit of success I believe he even slammed him on his head at one point but uh Sanhagen is just so slippery he's able to get out of these positions unless your name is Aljamain Sterling and you just have the death grip uh in your chokes and in your hooks so um again his last fight against Marlon Moraes goes out there and just picks him apart uh and gets a beautiful spinning heel kick finish or wheel kick finish in that second round follows up with some ground and pound and gets the gets the W and now here against Frankie Edgar this was a fight that was supposed to happen in uh, January of last year uh if you guys remember Frankie Edgar actually pulled out of that fight so that he can jump in on short notice against Korean Zombie and um showed off a you know 
unfortunate chin. <laughs> That's exactly what was the, the tale of Frankie Edgar's last couple fights. Up until the point, he runs into Pedro Munoz, uh, and they main event that fight. That was his first fight down at 135 pounds. Um, th yeah, that happened in August, and he and he won the split decision there. It seemed like right off the bat, there was a huge uproar that uh, Pedro Munoz won that fight. If you go back and watch that fight, it was a relatively close fight. And we saw, you know, almost some classic Frankie Edgar stuff in there in terms of moving very well, landing combinations and pivoting out of the way, getting out of the way of most of these big shots coming from Pedro. And even when Pedro landed his big shots, Frankie Edgar was still doing a good job in terms of, you know, keeping conscious. Like, he didn't go out as a lot of people expected him to go out. And I know a ton of people that were putting money on uh, Pedro Munoz to win this fight, and not just win this fight, but when this fight inside the distance, and I'm sure they're just like, wow, how is he eating these shots? So maybe that has to do something with him coming down to 135 pounds. Again, a lot of people have been banging the drum since he was the champion at 155 pounds. They're like, quit the quit the the, the 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 nonsense. Let's get you down to 135, where you truly should be, where you're actually cutting weight to make weight. And uh, you know his his first foray into a 135 actually turned out to be pretty successful for him, especially going up against a power puncher like Pedro Munoz. Now here's the difference, though. You got Pedro Munoz on one hand, who's a great power puncher, has some great leg kicks as well too, but not really the most mobile and agile guy out there, which makes things a lot more difficult when you're fighting a guy um, like Corey Sandhagen. When you go from a guy like Pedro Munoz, who's cool to just sit in the pocket and trade with you, and then you go up against a guy in Corey Sandhagen who's moving a lot more, uses his distance very well, and throws more than just you know a, a, some hooks. Like he goes out there, throws leg kicks, throws body kicks, throws spinning shit, does a good job of maintaining distance, and uh, really feints his shots as well too. Like I was saying at the top of this breakdown, that it, it really confuses guys. So I think this is a very intriguing matchup for both guys because they're kind of going up against guys they've never really faced before in terms of their styles. Corey Sandhagen, the closest I can think of that that replicates the the, the Frank Yedger style is Rafael Sunsell, but again, it's it's still a completely different style because nobody moves the way that Frankie Edgar moves. And then for Frankie Edgar, as of late, he hasn't really fought anybody that moves the way Corey Sandhagen does. Maybe you can put Max Holloway into that a little bit, but again, Corey's a little bit more unorthodox. Yair Rodriguez, he ended up finishing him way back in 2017, but again, I, I, I'd kind of rate Corey Sandhagen a little bit higher than Yair Rodriguez at this point in time. Um, and not to mention, you know, Sandhagen is much better on the ground than, uh, than we saw from Yair Rodriguez in that fight. This is an interesting fight. Now, minus 440, in my opinion, it's a little bit too wide for Sandhagen. I think he wins this fight, but I think that line is just a little bit too wide. I'm not going to touch it. You know, um, if anything, I, I'd, I'd probably just throw it in a degenerate parlay uh, all the way at the bottom of it, though, because there is a chance that Frankie could squeeze this one out, especially if he doesn't get finished. I'm not expecting Corey Sandhagen to finish him, but uh, Frankie could absolutely make this fight close. Like, I'm intrigued to see how Corey deals with the in-and-out movement of Frankie Edgar, the combinations that Frankie throws as well, too. And I love the way he finishes combinations and then pivots out of the way, changes angles, and really is not there to be, be hit afterwards. But he has so much range to cover here. We're talking about um, five, I just want to get the numbers correct, five, six, 78 inch reach for Frank Edgar. I've, and I feel like that's being a little bit generous. And then we got five, 11, 70 inch 
reach for uh, Corey Sandhagen. So we're talking about two inch reach advantage, but we're also talking about uh, a five inch height advantage as well too. And that's where I think that the difference becomes and and the the hardships for Frankie Edgar really become, as I think we'll see some kicks out of uh, Corey to really try to keep Frankie on the outside. But he's gonna have to be very careful in terms of bringing his legs back because I think we could see uh, a grapple heavy type of approach here from Frankie Edgar who should be able to kind of you know get this fight to the ground. I, I don't think Corey Sandhagen has the greatest takedown defense um but uh yeah it, it's a much closer fight than the odds actually suggest and that's where my qualm is with this fight i just don't feel comfortable going out there and laying money on frankie edgar i just i, I, just, I just can't it's it's tough like he's turning 40 this year that's a that's another rule that i'm trying to make not not bet on 40 year olds 40 year olds in these lower weight classes um, and then you're talking about Corey Sandhagen, who just has looked amazing as of late. Uh, again, stylistically, very difficult matches and and different matchups than they've ever faced in the past before. But I think that this is something Sandhagen would absolutely be ready for and uh, and would be taking this challenge head on. Again, he was already training for him way back when, right? Over a year ago that he's already been uh, kind of uh, getting, getting ready for him or even had a game plan in mind to, to, to take him on. So I'll go with Corey. I don't know if it's going to be inside the distance. I'd probably feel safer just going with the with the decision prop here. But uh, again, it's going to be much closer than the odds suggest. So proceed with caution if you're willing to to parlay Sandhagen with some real money at that minus four forty line. Uh, but I wouldn't be batting an eye on anybody that's taking the dog shot here on Frankie Edgar, as I feel like he could bring a, a very interesting uh, style to this that could stifle the the game plan of Corey Sandhagen. However. I'm still going with Corey. I think he'll be able to kind of, you know, faint well, land some good shots on the outside, really work the body as well to get some kicks in there uh, and really kind of stifle the movement, the forward movement of uh, of one Frankie Edgar. And again, we've seen Frankie really struggle with guys who have that size advantage on him, right? Again, I don't want to compare Max Holloway to Corey Sandhagen or anything here, but we, it's just never been notoriously a good spot for Frankie when he's trying to close the distance. And he's been fighting bigger guys his entire career. However, when you're talking about a guy as skilled as Corey Sandhagen here, uh, I think he's in for a bit of trouble. So I'll go with Corey. I think he wins this fight, uh, again, via decision. Um, just being a little bit more diverse with his strikes, uh, landing the better shots, maybe even landing the, uh, the, the more damaging blows as well too we've definitely seen frank edgar uh aesthetically show that he's been in a fight whenever he goes in there uh cory sanhagen not so much on the other side uh but yeah i'll go with cory uh to win this fight via decision alistair overeem versus alexander volkov and we got this heavyweight belt uh headlining this card and it's a pretty pivotal one too considering the little bit of a streak that we have uh for both guys obviously volkov is, is coming off to a, a loss to Curtis Blades, which he quickly followed up with the dismantling of Walt Harris way back at UFC 254. And uh, he's looking to build upon that momentum. He's number six. We got Alex, uh, Alistair Overeem at number five. In terms of odds, we got Volkov coming in as a pretty hefty favorite at minus 180. And we got the uh, return on Overeem around plus 160. Now, let's start off with Overeem, or Volkov like I was um you know, coming over from Bellator, he had a little bit of a stint over there in Russia too. But he came over to 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 the uh, to the UFC scene, and he dropped a couple of his first fights. Um, and then, in recently, uh, you know, he's been uh, exchanging wins and losses, particularly his last four fights. Uh, he was 11 seconds away from beating Derek Lewis back at UFC 229, gets knocked out there. Uh, then he goes on to beat a short-notice Greg Hardy. That was actually the first time he was scheduled to fight Alistair Oreem, and that was uh, back in 
uh, November of 2019, I believe it was. Uh, so he goes out there, outpoints Greg Hardy, who I believe broke his hand in that fight too. Comes back, loses to Curtis Blades. Very tough stylistic matchup for him. And then he comes back and beats Walt Harris uh, in a very impressive fashion. And I think that has a lot to do with why he's as big of a favorite as he is here against Overeem. We know his game. He's a tall dude, 6'7", 81 inch reach. Uses his kicks and his length very well with his, uh, with his jab. Uh, with his striking is primarily a, a striking fighter um, but one thing that we noticed in his last fight is he put on a little bit of weight and uh, a lot of people saw that as a possibly a bad thing uh, but it worked out pretty well for him there so he weighed in against Curtis Blades at 247 that was June of 2020 he comes back four months later against Walters and he weighs in at 265 so he puts on a solid 18 pounds there who knows if he was even more than 265 since that is the heavyweight limit but uh you know still an impressive performance a lot of people thought it would slow him down if anything it would slow him down in a fight like this where you know we're going 25 minutes so i'm interested to see if we're uh if we're actually going to see um volkov once again come in at that heavyweight limit and what he looks like on the scales and and how it would transfer to him possibly surviving a full 25 minutes with alistair over him uh it was a, a body kick that eventually uh uh, put Walt Harris down and he managed to finish him just about a minute and a half into that first or that second round and again he looked great and I think a lot of people are kind of overblowing that which is why he's a minus 180 favorite here let's talk about Alistair Overeem now who's on a two-fight winning streak um he well he could have been on a five-fight winning streak as of right now uh he gave up that last second knockout to Jerzyna Rosenstrike I have a lot of thoughts about that regarding you know Rosenstrike kind of just calling it uh, himself which kind of forced the ref referee to step in himself um you possibly like we've seen instances in the past where referees and, and stuff have let fighters kind of try to battle back from that but they just did not have it there and that was rough for Overeem as he was like four seconds away from pretty much locking up another victory right there so he falls to Jerzyna Rosenstreich goes out there and absolutely batters Walters uh in their fight not before getting uh dropped and rocked himself too he does show good perseverance pushes through that uh covers up long enough and then pushes away so that the referee wouldn't stop it and then eventually we see him you know take down Walters and start to grind on him and really start to outwork him eventually f finishing him via second round ground and pound and then after that, he goes out there and uh, beats a, a 29 year old Augusto Sakai and I like to say 29 year old because a lot of people put a lot of flack on these guys that have reached 40 years old and think they automatically lose fights once they reach 40 he turned 40, I believe, a day or two after he beat Walt Harris. And then a, a three months later or four months later, he goes out there and just dummies Augusto Sakai. Those first two rounds, a little bit close. You could definitely score them from Augusto. But it seems once that third round hit, it started to go downhill for Sakai. And that's where we saw over him, you know, absolutely bludgeoning him in that fourth round. Almost came close to finishing him there. And then in that fourth, fifth round, it was just... It took 25, 25 seconds or 26 seconds for him to take him down and just absolutely dribble his head off the canvas with some beautiful elbows and get the finish there. So his cardio checks out. He can definitely go five rounds. He can definitely put on a pace for five rounds. And, uh, you know, that, that's very um, reassuring if you're looking to back over him here at plus money. Another statistic that I kind of threw out there on Twitter the other day was... Uh, in Overeem's 13 fights from when he entered the UFC against Brock Lesnar all the way up until the time he fought Francis Ngannou which was the fight before Curtis Blades he only landed uh, th three takedowns 
which is crazy to me to think that now he's going out there in his next five fights after Curtis Blades and landing seven takedowns. And that's just an uh, attribution to him changing camps uh, after that uh, Curtis Blades loss. Ends up going to train with Curtis and picks up a, a thing or two over there. And we've seen him pull off some pretty nifty takedowns since joining that team. So we're seeing an evolution in, in, in Alistair Overeem's game, even in his late 30s and 40s now. So uh, that's very reassuring for a fighter that is as skilled as Overeem is. And we've seen him kind of like come over to the US and, and try a couple different training camps out, but it really doesn't work out. Apparently there's a lot of like ego issues or something there. Um, but he, he goes over to Colorado and he looks amazing. Apparently he's a, a great training partner now, especially for a guy like Curtis Blades, who's on his way to the top. Uh, another statistic that was great too, in his last three fights, he's accrued almost 18 minutes of control time, which is a further proof of uh, Overeem knowing that, okay, yeah, I just can't go out there and try to knock these guys out anymore. I need to go out there, grind them out, slowly work my game, and then the finish will eventually come if that's if that's what what is open to me. Just as it was against Walt, just as it was against Augusto, and the finish didn't come against Jairzinho, even though it went a full five rounds, but he still showed off a good uh, fight IQ there in terms of just um, you know, controlling and, and nullifying the power of Jairzinho up until pretty much the last couple of seconds of that fight. Uh, now here against Volkov, I, I think he's going to have success in kind of uh, pushing Volkov up against the cage and really um, making it a dirty grinding fight, making it a, an Alistair Overeem 3.0 type of fight where he's just clinching, working his knees as, as he always has uh, throughout his career. One of the most devastating knees, uh, you, you know, in the clinch definitely comes from Alistair Overeem. And now, you know, mixing in takedowns and, and having good top pressure and and the way that he f finished Sergei Pavlovich was very impressive as well too. Not really in the uh, full guard, but just standing over and landing absolute bombs. And he's really starting to, to figure out how to get his striking going on the ground too to really uh, devastate these guys and really hurt them too. So um, his chin obviously been an issue later in his career gets knocked out by Jairzinho Rosenstreich but again not the cleanest knockout gets dropped for sure um but Jairzinho I, I I put him up there with like the Francis Ngannou's in terms of having knockout power I think Jairzinho might have the second uh second or third uh hardest punch in the UFC behind Francis Ngannou and maybe Derek Lewis as well too who obviously holds the knockout record in the UFC for heavyweights his other time he got finished was by Curtis Blades. That was elbows in the guard. Absolutely beautiful work for him from him there. Um, and then, yeah, ground and pounded by Stipe back in 2016. So what I'm basically trying to get it as, I don't think that um, Overeem's chin is much of an issue nowadays um, compared to what it used to be like a couple years ago. Um, Alexander Volkov, on the other hand, he's not really like a one-punch knockout kind of guy. Like even with Walt Harris, he puts him out there, uh, puts him away with the, with a body kick. You know what I mean? Uh, and before that, beats Fabrizio Verdum pretty much from exhaustion. You know what I mean? Uh, Stefan Struve, same thing, uh, beats him in the third round. So, I, I, again, I don't really attribute uh, Volkov as being this crazy knockout artist, which is where I don't really have much uh, qualms in terms of Alistair Overeem's side here. Another issue that I have with Overeem, though, is his kind of defensive shell that he goes into whenever guys are kind of bombing on him. He just shows up like this, puts his back up against the cage, and then just waits for his moment to pounce. And, you know, it looks decent. Like, more often than not, the shots of these fighters hit his guard and hit his elbows and his and his shoulders. 
Um, but there's just that that little hole right in the middle where uh, you know Volkov definitely has a very nice uppercut of his own, and he could definitely land one of those and possibly put Overeem out like that too. So that's a little bit of a concern there. Um, but he does a good job in terms of right after getting out of that defensive shell of putting it back on his opponents, throwing a combination, going for a takedown, clinching up, whatever it is. He does a solid job of 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 getting that back. Uh, so I do like Overeem here, and and I think he has a solid shot of winning here. Uh, currently around that plus 160 range. I want to see where the line goes before I jump on this spot. Um, you know, um, a plus 200, you're getting roughly a, a 33% implied odds on Overeem. And I think he has at least a 40 to 45% shot of winning this fight. So I'm looking to kind of like um, expand the value I'm getting here. Uh, I already have a couple plays. Uh, you know, already have a couple bets in play for this card. So I do want to see, uh, you know, where this overeem line goes before I get a little bit too greedy and overzealous and trying to trace more dog money. So, uh, yeah, I like overeem here. I think he could kind of just slow this fight down. I like the improvements that we've been seeing from him since he changed camps and going over there to work with Team Elevation and, and Curtis Blades and those guys. And we're seeing it on a fight-to-fight basis. Like the guy goes out there, shows off his takedowns, shows off his ground and pound, shows off his, his ability to control these guys. And that's very huge for him. And I think Volkov is another guy that he could do that to. Volkov, uh, you know, sketchy takedown defense. I think UFC stats has him listed at 66% takedown defense. But, you know, he, he stuffed... I believe it was 11 takedowns of Curtis Blades, but Blades still went out there and ended up landing 14 of them. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I like I like Overeem here. I think we'll see a decision victory from him here. Uh, again, c- continuously taking down Volkov, maybe not to a Curtis Blades level. Obviously, that's a that's a little bit of a stretch given the background that Curtis Blades has in wrestling. But, uh, you know, control time up against the cage, control time on the ground, landing some good shots, maybe some uh, kicks here and there, uh, given that Volkov's, uh, you know, leg stance is, is always there to kind of be hit. And then again, solid work in the clinch as well too, where I think we'll see Overeem land some good knees up the middle and to the body. So, um, yeah, I feel like there's just an exaggeration on Volkov right now due to how impressive he looked against Walt Harris. But Walt Harris, again, let's be honest, realistically is not a top 10, top 15 heavyweight. So you can't really make the comparisons in terms of how that performance will translate here against Overeem, who's a much better fighter, way more experienced, has seen guys like Volkov in the past too. Uh, you're talking about uh, Overeem, who has, was it 50-something fights now? Let me do the quick math. He's 47 wins, 18 losses. So we're talking about 65 fights. It's going to be a 66th pro MMA fight, not to mention all the countless kickboxing and Muay Thai fights that he's at as well too. So... I like Overeem. I'm going to take him to win by decision. Another veteran Overeem uh, performance, taking Volkov down when he can, uh, getting some good minutes up against the cage, uh, and then after that, maybe pulling away a little bit later in this fight, especially given the physique that Volkov might be coming into this fight with. So uh, I got Overeem to win this fight via decision. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed them. Feels nice to be back in this chair. Feels nice to get these breakdowns out again. And again, we got eight straight weekends of fights. So your boy's going to be hitting you with breakdowns uh, pretty much every single day. Again, I drop uh, early breakdowns on the Patreon. So if you guys want access to those, I should already have a couple up for the next event. Um, But I'll be banging them out throughout the week. Um, That's UFC 258, which is the next one. Headlined by Kamaru Usman and Gilbert Burns. Great card. Can't wait to get into that one for you guys as well. Uh, But yeah, make sure you guys check out CoolBet. Link in the description below as well as the bonus code MMALOTN2. And then the Patreon, link in the description below as well too. Um, Yeah, 
that's about it. Good luck on your bets this week, and hopefully your boy can continue the momentum from that last card and uh, get myself out of this hole once again. Uh, but uh, yeah, heading into UFC 258, we hope to be up a, a little bit. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, good luck on your bets this weekend. I'll see you guys throughout the week. I got a ton of spots that I'm doing, not to mention the Thursday propping you up show that I do with Cody Saftik at 8 p.m. Eastern, the Friday final weigh-in show that I do with the Odds Crew at 9 p.m. Eastern, my fight day show that I do at 1 p.m. Eastern, and then uh, I got stuff on Tuesday and Wednesday as well too, and not to mention the DFS show that I'm doing for my guy Sal Vetri on his channel. That should be coming out at Thursday afternoon at the latest. But yeah, your boy's busy. Let's get this money. Good luck on your best this weekend, and I'll see you guys throughout the week.